G'day, mate. Luke Ford here talking to historian J. Otto Paul. Uh, Otto, I have a thought to get us started with. Like, very basic question, like who, who benefits from this latest conflict with Israel and Hamas and the Palestinians? So it, it's really hard to find a list of people who benefit because America is not benefited by this conflict. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, Joe Biden like flying to Israel in the middle of this conflict just seemed absolutely insane and very much against America's best interests as America's support for Israel was a significant reason that Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11. So the United States does not benefit from this latest flare-up. Now, it's hard to see how Hamas benefits in the long term because I, I assume it's going to be pretty much wiped out as a military unit. Uh, the Palestinian Authority should seem poised to, to benefit if it can get its act together. Uh, China doesn't really benefit because it's very likely to have to pay you know, a lot more for, for oil. But there is one key player who does seem to obviously benefit, and that's Russia and Vladimir Putin. And he seems to be encouraging all sorts of proxy wars which are distracting the United States. So I assume that uh, Putin benefits from this. You've got, in all likelihood, higher gasoline prices. You've got the United States distracted from arming and supporting Ukraine. World attention is shifted from the Ukraine conflict. Uh, Does Putin and Russia benefit from this uh, Hamas versus Israel conflict. Does anyone benefit? Who are the parties that benefit from this? What do you think, Otto? Well, I, I think Russia benefits mainly because uh, it brings to the point there's there's not enough arms or money from the United States or willingness to give that much to both uh, Israel and Ukraine. So it looks like uh, in the conflict between that, that the Ukrainians are going to lose out. The, the amount of uh, assistance they're receiving uh, in the U.S. The has already been uh, drastically cut. So uh, the Ukrainians will probably have to cut a deal, which they lose uh, territory that they claim. Uh, and that, of course, will benefit Russia. And if the Russians are no longer having to fight, if there is a armistice uh, in Ukraine. Uh, they obviously benefit uh, that way, too. Uh, I'm not sure other than strengthening uh, ties with places like Syria and Iran, uh, how much they directly benefit from the conflict with Hamas. Uh, but the ramifications certainly for Ukraine definitely help Russia a lot. But I think Hamas thought that they could benefit long-term. It can be difficult to see out, but they're making a, a huge gambit that if they make uh, a huge sacrifice here, that it will turn kind of the uh, pivot, the the framing of the conflict more in their interest over the next couple of decades. Now, whether that will will happen or not, I don't know. But I think they were making a, a big gamble because nothing else was was working as far as uh, the moving towards uh, their their goals versus the Israelis. And you know, theoretically, Iran benefits. It, it makes it. You know, everyone's talking about Iran right now, but I mean, there are a lot of downsides for I- Iran as well. Do you think I- Iran is benefiting from this conflict? 
they, they benefit in some ways. I mean, for, for, for a long time, despite being Persian and, and, and having a large Azeri minority and not being Arab, uh, they've been the only kind of remaining uh, openly anti-Zionist power. Uh, other states like Egypt and Jordan, uh, even Saudi Arabia and the Emirates were moving to uh, establish diplomatic relations and normalize uh, relations with the state of Israel. Uh, so that, that's not something that's been on the horizon for the revolutionary government in Iran ever. Uh, it's kind of a, a principle of theirs, despite not being Arab. Uh, so it's kind of the leader, I guess, in the as the you know militants or uh, rejection. I guess they used to call it the rejectionist, right? The three no's from Sudan. Uh, Iran benefits somewhat that way. Uh, but again, you know, Hamas has its own agency. So they weren't uh, ordered by Moscow or Tehran to make the attack. They decided that on their own, leaving that in the long term they would benefit. But how long they're thinking, I don't know. I'm guessing several decades. So at this point, to try and calculate uh, it was difficult. I mean, if, if the Israelis succeed in pushing the Palestinians out of the Gaza Strip, if they can push them into Egypt or have them resettled elsewhere, obviously uh, that uh, plan by Hamas might not work. But if the outflow of people is not complete, say it's, you know, they lose 30 to 40% of their population, they still might think that they benefit uh, over a course of maybe a half a century. But I mean, it's hard to say because Hamas isn't giving any candid interviews to, to anybody at this point. Right. And off the, off the top of my head, it doesn't seem that most critics of, of Israel are really going to benefit because suddenly Israel's united. Uh, prior to October 7th, like Israelis were at each other's throats. Uh, now suddenly Israel's united. What do you think? Well, that's true, but, but that happens with, with every war. Um, and this one in particular, yes, you're right, that internally there was a, a, almost a, a movement by, uh, I guess, the more left-wing uh, members of Israeli society to try and remove Netanyahu and, and the Likud leadership uh, over issues of corruption and other things not necessarily related to uh, the relationship with uh, Arabs. Uh, and then, of course, uh, now that uh, you've had this uh, attack by Hamas killing, I, I think, 1,400 civilians, uh, I don't think they have an exact count yet. Uh, this, of course, is, is unified, obviously, the, the left with uh, Netanyahu. They might not agree on anything else, but they'll agree on, on crushing Hamas. Uh, but I don't think Hamas ever, like, seriously thought that they could overcome those divisions in, in a conflict. I mean, uh, I'm sure that the smarter Palestinians and Arabs who kind of study the Israelis know about the divisions, but I think they've come to the conclusion that when it comes to, you know, uh, this type of conflict here, they're going to be a, a Palestine from river to the sea, uh, there aren't going to be very many Israelis siding with the Palestinians. Uh, Yuri Davis and uh, <laughs> Yuri Averni might be the only two. Uh, who were who the most eloquent uh, intellectuals or spokesmen or pundits 
making the case for the Palestinians? Oh, well, Said is dead, so Said, but Said was not particularly my favorite. But he did write one kind of basic primer that kind of set out the Palestinian uh, position, the question of Palestine, and it was specifically aimed for. Uh, Americans that had no background really in the issue. Uh, so that's a fairly decent book, but it's very basic as to what the Palestinian uh, grievances are uh, and the kind of history of uh, trying to resolve them. Uh, Rashid Khalidi, uh, who took over from Saeed at Columbia, was formerly University of Chicago, and is, interestingly enough, the supervisor of my supervisor, uh, so kind of my Ergrosvater er uh, for the Ergros Dr. Vater, I guess is the German word. Uh, he's written uh, quite a bit, uh, particularly about uh, the difficulties. Uh, the Palestinians don't have a great hand to begin with in 48 and even before that when they were dealing with the, the British and uh, uh, the, the mandate as far as uh, having any powerful leverage. But there's also the problem, as I said, their, their own leadership has created some, a number of obstacles for them as well. If they had had better leadership in an organization, uh, they might have been in a much better position. Uh, I'm not gonna say that the uh, all the agreements offered were that great, but there, there were a couple of them were certainly better than being bombed into rubble currently. Yeah, now, how about the Palestinian Authority? Does it? Does it benefit? I don't know how it can. The Palestinian Authority is in a, is a bad position for two reasons. One, it, it doesn't have a lot of power. Uh, it's a lot, much less uh, autonomous in the West Bank because of the geography and the settlers uh, than the Hamas is in Gaza. But also it's had very corrupt leadership. Uh, so the question is, I mean, and this is why Hamas won the election, uh, that the one election that they did have in Gaza is that a lot of the Palestinians view the Palestinian Authority as corrupt and only for its own benefit, rather than to, you know, press any type of, of fight against the Israelis or try and build or benefit anything for ordinary Palestinians uh, on, a, on a, any type of scale. So. Uh, this kind of just proves the, the Palestinian Authority even more impotent, right? Because it's not them that's doing any action. Whatever you may say about Hamas, they have certainly taken action. Whether this action will benefit them as an organization in the future, I don't know. Does it benefit the Palestinians? Probably not, given the fatalities they've already taken. This seems to have been a, a rather... Uh, bad gamble if you're looking at it from humanitarian point of view for the Palestinians. But uh, again, I can't get into the heads of any of these people. And it's not like they were ever really uh, open and honest uh, about, you know, their plans. Uh, basically, uh, a lot of conspiracy and clandestine type of thinking among the uh, Palestinian militants, particularly those in the occupied territories, as well as uh, places like uh, Lebanon. Uh, are there any good uh, historians on this conflict who you'd recommend to, you know, at least 
approach some level of uh, disinterestedness? Uh, a number. Um, I, I thought you had the interview with Matthew. He recommended uh, Benny Morris, uh, whose work still holds up. Benny Morris is interesting as he is ideologically uh, very much on the right side of Israeli politics, almost uh, on the Likud side, I would say. Uh, but he is a pretty honest historian, and so his uh, his work, uh, I think, uh, holds up pretty well as far as uh, uh, an honest narrative. Uh, and, and I would also agree uh, with what little I saw with Matthew that, yeah, um, the plan Dalit was not so much a, a plan by the top, but as giving uh, license to the military on the ground to, to do it, which is one of the reasons why the ethnic cleansing in 1948 was not complete. There were military commanders who used their authority, uh, particularly uh, in Nazareth, uh, not to push out the Arabs across the border into Transjordan or Syria or Lebanon. Yeah, I mean, Gaza just looks really weird uh, uh, when, when you look at it on a map. And so apparently Gaza is the, is the result of uh, Egyptian tanks pushing north towards Tel Aviv in the 1948 conflict and where, where they were stopped, uh, essentially. Is it, can, can you, I mean, it's such a well, weird-looking location. Yeah, well, but it was part of the territory that was supposed to be, when they had the partition, the, which never got off because the Arabs rejected it in part, I mean, that's part of the reason, but uh, it, that the Arabs didn't want to give up any uh, of the territory. It was to be given to an Arab state. So it was a larger territory than that. And then uh, part of it was taken by the Egyptians in 48 when they uh, invaded. And then it was never annexed to Egypt. It was under Egyptian military administration, but Nasser and Sadat never made it part of the Arab Republic of Egypt. And uh I mean some some commentators say that uh that Egypt hates hates Gaza more than Israel does. What's what's Israel's uh, what's Egypt's relationship like with Gaza? Why doesn't it just for example take well, it over? I, I don't think they want the Gazan pushed into Egypt because uh, they have no ability to 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 take care of them. Uh but yeah, the None of the Arab states other than Jordan really uh, have been uh, really strong on integrating uh, Palestinians uh, that were displaced in 48 and their descendants. So uh, a lot of Palestinians have become Jordanian citizens, but uh, that's not possible for most of them in places like Lebanon uh, or even Syria. So uh, the Egyptians, of course, when they ruled Gaza, they never made it part of Egypt. And the uh, Palestinians that were there, most of them uh, refugees or displaced persons or expellees from what becomes uh, Israel's uh, area of control in 1949, uh, none of them ever got Egyptian citizenship, or very few. Why wouldn't Egypt simply be willing to to run the place? Like, don't don't most uh, countries want more power and 
more space, even if they don't incorporate it? Into... I think because it would be extraordinarily difficult. Uh, they would have to uh, overcome Hamas themselves. Yeah, so that, I mean, one one incentive that's operating here is that uh, Egypt's leaders don't want to get assassinated like uh, Anwar Sadat. Is that fair to say? That may be uh, a, a uh, consideration. Um, certainly, uh, there's been a long-term conflict between the Islamic assist uh, and the Egyptian government going all the way back to Nasser uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, so that's the possibility because Hamas is part of the, uh, is that Islamist uh, movement uh, in the Arab world. Uh, I'm not sure how strong their connections are with uh, groups in Egypt and elsewhere, but certainly they're coming from the same kind of ideological root uh, as being a Islamist uh, as well as nationalist. So uh, that is a possibility, but I think it really is uh, Egyptian like government likes the status quo over what it views as the possibility of change. In this case, uh, if they had to uh, deal with uh, 2.1 million people in Gaza, uh, it would not be to their benefit, they don't believe. Uh, who, who do you think could plausibly run Gaza after Israel's done smashing it? I don't know. Uh, it's an interesting case. Um, I mean, they could do what they did before they kind of just, you know, walled it off and, and left it to uh, Hamas. But uh, then they've got uh, the problem of, of trying to keep the control of police themselves, which uh, I don't know if they really want to go back to that. Uh, I mean, it's not a huge territory. On the other hand, if they are largely successful in displacing the population outside of the territory, it might not be difficult. So if they move it down to there's only 200,000 uh, Palestinians left in Gaza, uh, it's possible they could get enough uh, settlers from Israel proper that uh, they could uh, get a Jewish majority there and it would be much easier to run. But I mean, I, I haven't seen any plans or any statements by any Israelis uh, what they would do uh, after uh, destroying Hamas. It all seems to be uh, eliminate Hamas as an organization at the, the end point that they're, they're currently talking about. So if you, if you had to, you know, bet your life, uh, so you're strongly incentivized to try to be as accurate in your prediction as possible. Yeah, what kind of timeline do you think there is for Israel to maintain its independent existence as a Jewish state? in the uh, area That's really hard to say, because it depends on all types of things. But I think... The, the gambit by Hamas was that it would shorten the timeline, that uh, it would uh, shift international framing, international support, uh, moving uh, negative uh, opinion uh, towards Israel in the U.S. Uh, and other places, and that uh, this would, uh, in the long run, uh, be to their advantage. But, I mean... <laughs> This is very difficult to, to ascertain because uh, 
You know, there was a, a point in the 73 war when it looked like the Arabs were winning and there was a chance that perhaps Israel would, would use nuclear weapons. Uh, then they managed to reverse uh, that with using only conventional weapons. But uh, there's a, it's, it's hard to say which way the momentum will go because things swing back and forth. And for a long time, a kind of the consensus was that there wasn't much the Palestinians could do and they kind of just had to accept the status quo uh, and that Israel uh, within its, uh, the, the armistice borders of 49 would continue to do quite well, particularly uh, in terms of economics and demographics. And what about the Islamic Republic of I Iran? What kind of life expectancy do you see for an Islamic Republic of Iran? as opposed to some other type of government of Iran? You know, it's, that's again hard to say. It, it lasted a lot longer than many people thought. Uh, it wasn't overthrown as a result of the devastating war with Iraq, which caused uh, immense damage uh, in terms of loss of human life and, and infrastructure. So th that government is a lot more resilient than, than it appears, but of course, uh, things that are not particularly good in Iran and they haven't been for quite a while. When I lived in Iraq, uh, you could look at the exchange rate for the Iranian currency and see that the standard of living was decreasing uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, how, how does it st stay in power? Do you think it enjoys general support of the Iranian people? Uh, again, hard to know. Iran is even more difficult to to kind of get a hold on than, than uh, the Palestinian uh, militants. Uh, so uh, I think that there is some popular support, uh, but I think a lot of it is like every other authoritarian regime is mostly people are just not politically active. They're not, uh, uh, they're rather apathetic as far as uh, their actions uh, towards uh, government. And so this is a, plays into the advantage of any existing government that uh, lots of people aren't going to oppose it, even if they don't love it. Uh, and I think the opposition to Iran is very much split among different ideologies. I mean, in some cases you have, you know, remnants of uh, the old communist to death represented organizations like uh, the uh, Mujahideen at Ikak, and you have uh, some or, uh, people that would like to have a more democratic, open system. You have people want to restore the monarchy of the Shah, although I'm not sure how many of those people actually live in Iran as opposed to places like Los Angeles. Uh, but yeah, I don't think the opposition, uh, in so much as it ex even uh, exists in any type of uh, organized fashion is unified amongst itself. So that also helps the Iranian government in that uh, they are unified, even if uh, they are a minority. Now, why is the behind the scenes being so much, for example, intelligence sharing between Saudi Arabia and Israel, who on the face of things have historically been implacable enemies, but now they seem to have at an elite level behind the scenes, they seem to have quite a cozy relationship. Well, that's been going on for a while. I mean, that started, 
I think I was still in Ghana when uh, he started having uh, behind the scenes cooperation between the Saudis and Israelis. I mean, a lot of that was driven by the fact that the Saudis and other Gulf Arabs considered Iran to be a much greater threat than the Israelis. So uh, they thought that uh, moving toward normalization and some cooperation, uh, particularly against Iran, uh, with Israeli intelligence would be uh, to their benefit because they're the main threat uh, to their power, especially in places like Iraq, but also even Lebanon, uh, Yemen in particular, uh, there was a expansion of Iranian uh, influence at the expense of the Sunni Arabs. And it's kind of uh, amazing that 99% of, of Saudis would be strongly opposed to normalization, I would expect, with Israel. And yet it could very well happen because in Saudi Arabia, but also in the United States, like popular opinion really doesn't count for much with regard to foreign policy. America has already decided that it, it will be willing to risk tens of thousands of American lives to defend Taiwan. Now, without regard for how the American people feel about it. And you could have a nation like Saudi Arabia possibly reaching a normalization of relations with, with Israel, even if 99% of their citizens are opposed to it. Am I missing something? No, no. I mean, the, the monarchy has enough legitimacy that it can, you know, go against uh, the popular will on certain things. Uh, and that uh, generally includes foreign policy. So the... They had almost actually normalized relations as far as uh, establishing like open diplomatic ties uh, before Hamas attacked and then the Saudis uh, uh, called it off. But the United Arab Emirates had already established uh, diplomatic relations and direct flights uh, and uh, uh, other expanded uh, open because there had been a lot of clandestine stuff, as you mentioned before, going on for your uh, ties with the Israelis. So, yeah, the Arab street is much more anti-Zionist than the Arab governments, in part that's because of the, the geopolitics with Iran being considered a, a greater problem. Uh, but it's also, I think, that the Arab leadership kind of view these things as uh, geopolitical problems, uh, whereas the street it has more of the... Uh, old style uh, rejectionist front, what the government of Iran has, uh, viewing of the issue not as a geopolitical one, but as strictly as a moral one, that uh, this is Arab land in Palestine being occupied by uh, foreigners. And so uh, I don't think the frameworks are the same. In, in the case of, of, of Saudi Arabia, you can then, the government can, uh, uh, establish diplomatic relations with Israel. In the case of Iran, it's obviously not going to happen because they view uh, these things in very, very different ways. Now, am I right that foreign policy is largely a game carried out by the elite, not just in Saudi Arabia, but also in the United States, where you could have 70%, 80% of the American population opposed to something and yet, you know, foreign policy will be carried out against the overwhelming wishes of the American people? Uh, to an extent, but I mean, I'm not sure how long that can, can go on. I mean, if you get something that goes on for 
for years that is uh, costly, like the Vietnam War, uh, eventually uh, the popular opinion does have uh, a, a role to play. Uh, but I mean, the way the U.S. government has gotten away with, with the, it, it, after Vietnam is basically to make the cost uh, to the American people minimal. So there's no uh, conscription, there's no uh, draft, uh, something that would be quite noticeable to uh, the average American. So all these different uh, Sunni Arab governments increasingly making peace with Israel, do you think that they're seeing seeing reality and acting in their own best interests, or have they been hoodwinked by fancy Zionist propaganda? Oh no, I think uh, like I said if you go back, you have to uh, the Iran Iraq War, and then followed by that uh, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and the U.S. Uh, first Gulf War. Like I said Iran becomes a much greater issue for the Sunni Arab states, uh, particularly Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, than Israel uh, and Palestine. Uh, because it, the Iranians are right there and they, uh, they have been uh, since the first uh, Gulf War, greatly expanding their influence into the Arab states, most notably Iraq, but we could add Yemen, uh, we could add Lebanon. Uh, and this, of course, uh, is considered, was considered already in, in I think, uh, the early 1990s to, to be more important, strategically at least, uh, for the Arab Gulf states than, than the issue of Palestine. The issue of Palestine, as I said, for the Arab world, most of the time it was put in the framework, not as Israel is a geopolitical threat to the Arabs, although you could make that, that argument for places like Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon on the borders, but that this is a, a moral issue, right? That the, the, the cause uh, of, of the Palestinians is the cause for all the other Arabs, but that doesn't really work uh, long-term because Pan-Arabism, uh, breaks down along all kinds of, of, of divisions and lines, including, well, if we're, we're, we're in a uh, conflict with Iran over Iraq and Yemen, uh, maybe it's better if we have some uh, normalization uh, with the Israelis to help us. I mean, so uh, I, I think though that was also one of the considerations of Hamas is that they wanted to kind of derail this because they, if all of the Gulf countries, but most notably Saudi Arabia, uh, were to kind of uh, go the way of Jordan and, and Egypt and formalize uh, a peace and uh, normalize diplomatic relations with Israel, it would basically uh, remove what remains of Arab state support for the Palestinian cause. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 probably a lot less support for the Palestinian cause among Sunni Arab elites privately than than the the words they may give give publicly. I mean, privately, they're probably on Israel's side to a large extent when it comes to dealing with Hamas, for example. Is that fair? Uh, 
I don't know so much that, but yeah, there, there isn't any love lost between uh, the Palestinians and the leadership of the, the Gulf countries, including Saudi Arabia. Uh, they, they, they have in the past supported them, but they said for a long time, these governments were looking at uh, Iran rather than Israel as their main uh, opponent in the region. So just the war in Yemen is basically a war between Saudi Arabia and Iran through proxies. Now, why do Saudi Arabia and Iran just hate each other and are obsessed with fighting each other? Is it primarily over different interpretations of, of who is the true descendant of the prophet? Or... I, I, think, I think that's part of it as far as the kind of ideological cover which goes back a bit deeper. Iran is mostly Persian, about half, but a lot of the leadership are Turkic, whereas uh, obviously Saudi Arabia is Arab. But uh, no, I think it has to do with uh, the the it, the great expansion of Iranian influence uh, since the uh, end of the Basis regime in Iraq, that they have managed to uh, Put, it greatly increased their influence on the ground in Iraq and Yemen and Lebanon. The Hezbollah is allied with Iran. The Houthis and Yemen are allied with Iran. There are all kinds of militias, including the Hash al-Shabi, which was uh, organized by Soleimani in Iraq. Uh, so, you know, there's a Shiite crescent uh, today is infinitely uh, larger in the Arab world as far as having Iranian political influence than it was uh, 30 years ago. Hmm. And didn't China broker some kind of peace deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia in the last six months? I think so. Um, I, 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 yes, yes, there is a, a bit of movement. I mean, and this is, again, the Saudis' uh, leadership uh, taking a... a a better, more pragmatic uh, uh, approach to geopolitics. Obviously, when you look at just the human resources of Iran compared to Saudi Arabia, the Iranians have the, the long-term advantage. Uh, they also uh, have a more diverse economy. In fact, that they have some industrial uh, capacity, including for armaments manufacturing, uh, whereas Saudi Arabia imports uh, almost everything. Uh, in exchange for oil, uh, the Saudi leadership uh, would like to uh, not be in conflict with Iran uh, over these regions in Iraq and, and Yemen and other places. So if, the, if they could have a, a peace with everybody in the region, uh, that, that would greatly uh, benefit them. If nothing else, they could greatly reduce uh, their expenditures on armaments. Now, there seems to be an enormous anti-Iran, enormously funded, though not you know, enjoying necessarily widespread popular support. There seems to be a very effective, dominant, like anti-Iran, anti-Russia ideology that, that seems to dominate our news media. And I assume it reflects uh, much of the foreign policy establishment. Like, what's behind... <laughs> the visceral hatred for Iran by, you know, a tiny number of people who 
who then I, get I to have disproportionate influence. Yeah. Well, I think there's like two things going on. One, there's kind of like the never forgiving for the 79 hostage crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that seemed to have been a, a turning point for a lot of people. The kind of the, the realization that the, not everybody overseas loves the United States and that uh, uh, a number of our policies, in this case, uh, our long-term support for the Shah of Iran, uh, were not popular with some people. Uh, not popular with the uh, Iranians uh, under Ayatollah Khomeini, who established the Islamic Republic of Iran. So that was that's one thing going on. This kind of uh, that the Iranians did us a uh, uh, a wrong that ha- that uh, hasn't been righted yet. The other thing I think going on is that in the region, the only real competitor to the United States. Uh, and we ceased to, and they, they came about as a result of getting rid of uh, our previous uh, police dog in the uh, Persian Gulf, the Shah of Iran, uh, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, uh, is Iran. So, I mean, you, you look at, as I said, the other states, most of the Arab states, uh, Egypt, certainly, Saudi Arabia, certainly, uh, places like smaller places that are rich, like Qatar and uh, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, these are all pretty much in the U.S. camp. Uh, some of the, they might uh, dissent on some things, but, you know, there's the, they're more or less uh, supporting the U.S. Uh, kind of desired new world order uh, after the Second World War. Uh, so this came late for Egypt, uh, not until Sadat, uh, but it was always the case for Saudi Arabia since the 1943 agreement with the FDR and the King of Saudi Arabia. Uh, this isn't the case with, of course, the Iranian government. The Iranian government uh, broke away from that and is extraordinarily hostile to all of that, including it's been hostile to uh, the U.S. Uh, allies of Saudi Arabia and, of course, I- Israel. So in some sense, it's kind of... It, uh, the inversion, right? We had this very pro-American, westernizing, uh, but authoritarian and corrupt regime in Iran under the last Shah, and the Islamic Republic wants to do everything opposite of that. <laughs> now, Putin has completely changed his tune with regard to Israel. I assume he's simply acting out his own uh, national best interest because uh, this this conflict seems to be very much in his own best interest so he he has has an opportunity here to berate the US for you know failing to uh, secure some kind of deal between Israel and the, the Palestinians and by by whipping up or supporting or just simply passively benefiting from this Hamas Israel conflict it, it's good for him in all sorts of ways uh, any thoughts on what seems to be a dramatic change in Putin's rhetoric towards Israel since the October 7 attack? Hmm. Well, I, I don't know whether there's much a change. He just wasn't saying so much. I think, uh, I think we start to see less friendliness by the Russian Federation towards Israel uh, in the last few years over events in Syria because the Russians were very much uh, supportive of the government of Assad. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, now the Russians uh, have uh, backtracked publicly a lot on the more friendly, normalized relations that they established uh, after the end of the Soviet Union and got kind of back to the uh, Soviet uh, anti-Israeli uh, pro-Arab stance that uh, existed for from 1950, 54, 55, when the Czechs sell arms to Egypt all the way up until the collapse of the Soviet Union, but particularly uh, after 1967 uh, with the Six Day War, the, uh, the Soviets uh, were very much uh, in the Arab camp as far as uh, who they supported at the UN and uh, with the uh, armaments. Now, just as soon as the October 7 attacks happened, a dominant part of the news media wanted to blame the attacks on Iran, the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, read where the story had essentially been overseen by Iran. But Hamas is Sunni, Iran is Shia. There, there is obviously some cooperation and some mutual interest, but Hamas, by no, no stretch of the imagination, is a Hamas is no proxy for Iran. Is that fair to say? It is, but the Iranian government uh, on the issue of who they support, as far as uh, particularly uh, sub-state actors, uh, the guerrillas and, and terrorists, is very pragmatic. So when I lived in Iraq, I lived in what was called the, the green zone of the Kurdish region, which is controlled by the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. Now, this is supposedly a social democratic organization that had previously been a Marxist-Leninist Maoist organization. And most of the people uh, that are Kurdish uh, are Sunni. But uh, this, none of this mattered. The Iranians supported the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan going back to the war between Iran and Iraq because it was to their benefit to have, you know, a, a powerful Kurdish uh, guerrilla army in the region of Suleimania. Uh, that uh, it could cooperate with. So the fact that they were Sunni, the fact that the, their ideology was completely secular, maybe even anti-religious, did not bother the, the, the Islamic Republic of Iran at all. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, why do you think Hezbollah hasn't uh, gone all out against Israel? I think because uh, they don't see any advantage of it for Lebanon. I mean, if, if the, they were to attack northern Israel, then the Israelis might turn southern Lebanon into a second Gaza as far as uh, airstrikes. Uh, and there was a time when southern Lebanon was militarily occupied by the Israelis. It took quite a while for Hezbollah to, to remove them from, from southern Lebanon. I don't think that they really want to, to repeat that. So I think they're being cautious that uh, this is the fight for the Palestinians, not for the, the Lebanese Shiites, because uh, they, they actually don't want to provoke the Israelis. Uh, I mean, at this point, the Israelis uh, aren't going to lose anything as far as uh, you know, public support over humanitarianism if they extend bombing into Lebanon as well as Gaza. So uh, I think we're seeing a lot of prudence and uh, caution by, by the leadership in Hezbollah that they would like to uh, avoid being uh, in a conflict which would, even if they won, it would be a very pyrrhic victory because they would take a lot of losses. 
Uh, what's the status of the Kurds? You used to live amongst the Kurds. You taught at university with the Kurds. What's been going on with the Kurds? The Kurds? Yeah. Uh, they still are in it. Well, I mean, they're split uh, between Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. But Iraq is the only place they have any autonomous uh, government. But they, they are still in kind of the same uneasy relationship with Baghdad as to exactly which powers are federal and which powers are to be allocated to the Kurdish regional government. Uh, there isn't been a movement in a while to go for formal independence from uh, the Iraqi Kurds. Uh, the last one was when they had the referendum when I was there, which led to the, the loss of Kirkuk. Uh, to Baghdad uh, from the Peshmerga being uh, defeated by, well, Peshmerga being betrayed basically by Bafal Talabani and the Hash al-Shabi taking the, the city of Kirkuk. But uh, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like they're making any movement of progress. People tend to forget about the Kurds when other things happen in the Middle East. Uh, they, they never had, because Iraq and Syria were major uh Arab representatives in the non-aligned movement, they never had any type of international support the way the Palestinians do among various uh, third world states. And what does, what does Turkey get out of the Hamas-Israel conflict? I mean, Turkey's certainly turned up its rhetorical heat against Israel, but what are its vital national security interests, if any, in the Hamas versus Israel conflict? Well, it takes people's uh, minds away from what the Azerbaijanis, their very close allies, did to Armenia recently and ethnically cleansing 120,000 Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, so it's, in that sense, like Russia, it's like, uh, look over here, don't look over here, right? The, 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 uh, the Turks are able to uh, shield their Azerbaijani uh, allies and, and, and very close kin. The languages are almost identical uh, from any scrutiny because everybody's paying attention to what is happening in Gaza. Uh, so it, there's that, which is very similar to how the Russians benefit in Ukraine in, in some senses. Now, why why is Azerbaijan taking over Nagorno-Karabakh? What are the incentives that are driving them? This is one of those weird things, but the territory had been uh, settled by Armenians uh, during Tsarist period of time. But there were always kind of uh, transhumanist, uh, kind of semi-nomadic Azeris going in and out of it. But as part of the borders created in the Soviet Union, uh, after December 1922, the, also with negotiations with Turkey and Ataturk, it was decided that Nagano-Karabakh, even though it was majority Armenian, very much so, would be under the control of the Azerbaijani Soviet Socialist Republic as an autonomous oblast. And this didn't really matter because everything was under Moscow. But then in the 80s, there was a big push by the Armenians for greater sovereignty that 
That would include putting the Armenians who, uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh under the rule of Yerevan in the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic. So from 1988, you see this push. And when the Soviet Union falls apart, there's a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And the Armenians militarily take Nagorno-Karabakh uh, and the territory between uh, Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh as a linket. But because the borders were whatever existed by the Soviet Republic lines, that was what was internationally recognized, Nagorno-Karabakh was recognized still was part of Azerbaijan. So the Azeris kind of had this international right as far as that exists uh, under international law to, to expel the Armenian military from the Nagorno-Karabakh and the territory uh, slightly to the west, joining it to Armenia. Uh, and it took them a while. They had to get a lot of uh, support from Turkey. They got uh, support from Israel. Uh, they were at odds, obviously, with Russia and, and Iran. But they were successfully very recently in retaking that territory, which they had lost for quite some time. And to make sure that it didn't happen again, they expelled all of the civilian Armenians who had lived there for 150 years. Now, it looks like uh, Azerbaijan can just do anything it wants to Armenia militarily. Like, why is Azerbaijan so much more effective than Armenia? A lot more people. Uh, they have a, a lot of oil, which they can use to fund uh, weapons purchases. They have close relations with the Turkish Republic. Uh, and... and they had close relations with the state of Israel as far as military cooperation. Uh, their only real uh, ally of the Armenians uh, were the Russians and the Iranians. And the Russians seem to have kind of abandoned them recently. Uh, and so this kind of left uh, Ar Armenia in a lurch, which is one of the reasons why uh, they lost Nagorno-Karabakh and why the, their population was, was uh, expelled back into, well, uh, not the same people, but uh, <laughs> where their ancestors came from, back into the Armenian uh, Republic. So, yeah, Armenia is geographically in a bad position. Most of what was historically Armenia is the area now in eastern Turkey, which was completely ethnically cleansed by the Armenian genocide during World War One which means the only place that you have a concentrated Armenian population in historic Armenia uh, was the Armenian Republic, formerly Nagorno-Karabakh, which they've lost, and then also uh, a place called Mesketia Javaketia. So Javaketia next to uh, Armenia in Georgia has a large Armenian population, but I don't think they'll be able to challenge Georgian rule over that uh, in the wake of losing uh, the much more important uh, territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, why doesn't the world or the news media care about the ethnic cleansing of Armenians? Uh, nobody to, to make them care. Uh, I mean, there is a, a powerful Armenian diaspora, but it's kind of limited to, to Los Angeles, Fresno, uh, and a few other places, uh, mainly in California. Uh, so they certainly don't have the type of uh, international reach that either the Jewish uh, pro-Israeli lobby or the 
Arab pro-Palestinian lobbies have internationally. Uh, and uh, Turkey is a, a pretty important country uh, as far as uh, trade uh, with many places. As, uh, so a lot of people just don't want to, I mean, it's already a fait accompli. They don't want to upset the Turks. Uh, there's always been a long running uh, uh, issue of, of uh, the recognition of the Armenian genocide, uh, which is kind of strange because historically, obviously there was a genocide, but the Turkish government in kind of a just power flex, just denied it completely and did a lot of lobbying to prevent uh, other uh, governments from, from recognizing this historical fact. And why would Israel have an interest in su su uh, supplying Azerbaijan? Uh, there has been, I said, the geopolitics. Turkey for a long time was a close friend relative, uh, at least uh, much more friendly than any of the Arab states with Israel. They had full diplomatic and trade relations. Uh, Armenia, I said their main ally is Iran, uh, which has this militant anti-Zionist stance that uh, is more of a moral issue for them than a, a, a geopolitical issue. Uh, so, and Azerbaijan is also the major supplier of oil to the state of Israel. So the Israelis, uh, one of their strategies for kind of surviving the hostility of surrounding Arabs was to be, make friends with the non-Arabs that uh, boarded the Arab. Uh, so that included Turkey, that included Iran while the Shah was in power, and that included Ethiopia. So the kind of these non-Arab powers in the region uh, had historically uh, much better relations with Israel than the Arab states did. Uh, and Azerbaijan kind of just followed the, the lead of Turkey in that. Now, is there a great deal of contempt, uh, say, among Iranians and the Turks for, for Arabs? Do they make invidious assertions about Arabs and camels? Some of them do. Uh, there is an Arab minority in both countries, and they're not particularly persecuted. Uh, but you do hear, you know, Turks and Persians tell Arab jokes. You also tell them jokes about each other. Uh, and there's also the fact that uh, uh, the minorities that the Turks and Iranians are most concerned about are not the Arabs. Uh, in both cases, it's really the Kurds. Uh, and, and the Kurds, uh, I, I think, have a, probably a, a the best kind of take on, on this kind of inter-ethnic uh, conflicts. And they said, well, we don't mind so much uh, when the Arabs oppress us because the, they are uncivilized and uncouth people. So what could you expect of them? And the Turks are even worse. But it's a shame that such civilized and, <laughs> and, and cultured people as the Persians would oppress their Kurdish brothers. <laughs> now, who needs each other more? Does does Turkey, does NATO and America have more need for staying in Turkey's good graces, or does Turkey need to stay in NATO and America's good graces? Because Turkey does not speak like a typical member of NATO. Um, yeah, so. Turkey has moved more toward the Middle Eastern and Central Asian and Caucasian pivot uh, 
and for the last three decades because of their blocked uh, admission to the European Union. So it's, it's obvious they're never going to become a member of the European Union. So they have expanded their relations with uh, countries to the east and the south as kind of uh, a way to make up for this. But uh, the whole existence of NATO was kind of an anachronism because it was meant to oppose the Soviet Union, which hasn't existed for 30 years. So the whole uh, Soviet uh, position in the Caucasus doesn't exist. Now we have instead independent Armenia, independent Georgia, independent Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan and Armenia at war, of course, Armenians and Turks have uh, long... Uh, history of conflict, as do the Azeris and Armenians. So in a sense, uh, they've gone back to the kind of uh, pre-Soviet configuration. The Soviets kind of froze those conflicts in the Caucasus by having total control over the region. Uh, What do you make of Joe Biden's trip to Israel? Just absolutely unprecedented in American political times. I can't think of any other politician who would have done that except for possibly Donald Trump. And that's just because he's so unpredictable. Uh, I don't know. My, my own personal feeling about all these conflicts is that the more the U.S. can remain neutral, the better for the United States. And that uh, there, there isn't any side in most of these conflicts, particularly those that have an ethnic basis, that is going to be beneficial to the majority of Americans. Obviously, there's some people who make profit off of uh, various conflicts, and there are some people that have uh, various connections. But for the most part, uh, the Kumbaya <laughs> version of history, where Kurds, Arabs, Turks, Persians, and Jews are all going to hold <laughs> hands and sing Kumbaya is not going to happen. So there isn't ever going to be a time when all these people love each other. <laughs> Uh, and there's never going to be a time when if one of them who thinks they're aggrieved, who has power, isn't going to attempt to use it uh, in some sort of, of way, even if it's kind of just totally symbolic. And that's what you see again and again with various Palestinian movements, uh, things like plane hijacking, things like the recent attack by Hamas. Uh, they, they, they make a lot of, of visual uh attention for the world, and they can sometimes kill quite a few civilians, but uh, we're no closer really to a Palestinian state today than we were uh, in the 1980s, and arguably we're much further away from it than we were uh, at the beginning of the 2000s. Now, what have you been working on as far as your academic interests over the past couple of years? Well, I had this book published in 2022. It's uh, Years of Great Silence. It's the history of ethnic Germans in the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, uh, particularly during the Second World War. Uh, And I managed to get all the documents out of Moscow that I needed before Russia invaded Ukraine. So this is like one of the last books that got uh, archival access from Moscow, written in English by a Westerner. Uh, So that's been out for since uh, March 2022. And then I have a book chapter coming in a book. It's on Germans in Kazakhstan. Uh, I believe the title is Russian Germans on Four Continents. 
which is about uh, ethnic Germans from Russia in their in dispersal through from Europe to Asia and the various other continents, most notably North and South America. And uh, you look a little different. You look like a surfer. Have you taken up surfing? No, I've taken up working as a janitor and nobody cares what I look like. So I've just been too lazy to go to the barber shop. <laughs> now, don't you have like familial connection? Is it Azerbaijan or what are those John countries? No, Kyrgyzstan. Yes, oh, Kyrgyzstan. Family yeah. in Kyrgyzstan. Do you, do you get back there? much i haven't in a while i was back there for a while in 2021 i was there for an extended period of time and then i came back to the u.s and for a brief time of seven months with a middle school teacher and that was absolutely <laughs> horrible there were two times i thought i was going to die first time was actually on day of the dead in my day of the dead mug which would have been very fitting why did you think you're going to die I thought I was going to having a heart attack. And, blood and pressure shot way, way up. Just from dealing with kids. Dealing with 130 unruly, undisciplined American 13 year old, 12 and 13 year olds. Yeah. It's not something I've ever been trained to do. And, and uh, I was pretty glad when they asked me to resign in exchange for a generous severance package. <laughs> wow. And, what is it like working as a janitor? Uh, it doesn't use a lot of brain power, but I mean, you just get up early in the morning. So I start four or five in the morning, depending on what day. and You just go through the routine. Uh, although sometimes, uh, like yesterday, I got last hour of my shift. For some reason, somebody shit all over the floor of the men's room. That wasn't very pleasant. And do you get to have many intellectual discussions with your fellow janitors? Uh, not the fellow janitors, because they only have one of us working at a time. Uh, but oh. uh, customers, believe it or not. Okay, so you've had some good good chats with customers. Uh, yeah, so some some strange people. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so uh, you, every so often you'll meet uh, some guy who's they may be like a welder, but they'll have like all this weird esoteric knowledge of, of, of things. So like I met this guy the other day, he has like uh, a weird esoteric knowledge of like uh, uh, all of the <laughs> all of the communist movements in, <laughs> in the Middle East. Wow. Wow. Uh, did you work as a, a butcher or some other job in the last couple of years? I was a cashier and then I moved to being a janitor. So you weren't really a people person? Is that the reason for the move? No, because they wouldn't give me the cashiers. They limit strictly on the hours. And so when their, their morning janitor retired, they offered it to me. So I would stop complaining about not getting enough hours. And are you the only white janitor? Yes. Everybody else is Hispanic. And what's the job market right now for historians? Very bad. <laughs> Nothing to get any better. Uh, I don't know what it, they're looking for. The, the last job I applied to that I got rejected from the head of the history department, his main area of research was Brazilian soccer. 
And the one before that, the woman who headed the history department, her main re re uh, area of research was French hookers. So obviously writing political history is no longer in fashion. And what have, have you been asked to submit a diversity statement? I, I have one. I actually, I have it on my Substack, my diversity statement. I put it up there. Let me see if I can find it. And uh, what, what was it like crafting that? Well, here, here, uh, just go ahead and find it, and I'll just uh, I'll just fill the space. So yeah, you can it's just uh, basically talking about how I have experience teaching all kinds of different ethnic groups in uh, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. But uh, it's yeah. Uh, I mean, you've you've lived it, man. I mean, right. you've been all around. But uh, okay, diversity and inclusion statement. Oh, I'll put it in the chat. That's that's think. what I'm anticipating. Perhaps yeah, I'm going to say the funniest outcome is that that's here. not who the moons are named after. <laughs> um, but that was my problem when they interviewed me for the job here uh, for a middle school teacher, right? Yeah. It was all on, can you handle diversity as far as the Hispanic population? But it, there was nothing on, can you handle very unruly 12 and 13 year olds who are going to be completely undisciplined? Yeah. And how how is your social media and Substack and, and Twitter and online presence, has that affected your ability to get a job as a historian? I don't know. Probably, but it's hard to say whether anybody pays attention to it and whether it makes any difference at this point. Uh, I'm now in my uh, 50s, so uh probably unlikely that i will get another academic job uh in my my uh working years but uh i, I it, you know it, it it comes and goes for a long time there was absolutely nothing uh for russian and soviet history and then with the war in ukraine there was a few jobs i think i applied to five but now the war is ending so it looks like they're all going to dry up again are you willing to head back overseas to teach history? Sure, but those jobs have dried up too. I mean, before the Putin invaded Ukraine, I had a couple applications in Moscow and Tumen, but uh, they stopped hiring Americans uh, when the uh, U.S. Uh, came out in support of uh, Kiev against uh, Moscow. And... Uh... I mean, Norman Finkelstein didn't get tenure at the University of Chicago. I believe that uh, uh, Dershowitz, Alan Dershowitz, was a prime mover in trying to deny him. Uh, Daniel Dresner didn't get tenure at the University of Chicago. It's thought in large part because he had a he was writing a blog. Uh, I believe that Eric Siegel was a, an assistant professor at Yale in the English department, but when he published Love Story and it became a huge popular success, that that just doomed his chances of, of getting tenure. Uh, can you talk about the academic attitude towards popular success and how that kind of hurts your standing as an academic, or it can? Well, I, I don't know. Some, I mean, I, I really 
my entire academic career was as far as being in any institution to be able to see directly on the inside with outside the United States. So I did my PhD and master's in London. And then I taught in Kyrgyzstan and Ghana and uh, Iraq. Uh, so, but uh, you do seem to have in the English speaking world, uh, this kind of uh, pop star uh, professors at some of the bigger universities. Uh, we already mentioned Edward Said, who probably was far too much on the popular side and far too little on the scholarly side as far as, far as uh, his work. But uh, there are people, uh, Timothy Snyder at Yale, for instance, uh, is very well known uh, now, mainly because of his punditry, which I don't think much of, but he, his uh, book, uh, Bloodlands, uh, which uh, was quite good, I thought, uh, became very popular. Uh, his next book, uh, Black Earth, I haven't read yet, but the, going from the titles after Black Earth, he doesn't seem to have uh, uh, done much historical scholarship as opposed to polemics. Uh, do, do you have any idea what are the odds for someone getting a PhD from, let's say, a top 50 worldwide university? What are their odds of locating a job in the first world as a history? Uh, for academic? history, they've been getting smaller and smaller just because so the job that I applied to that was the department is run by the Brazilian football expert for a entry level position to teach Russian, Soviet, uh, Eurasian and East European history. They received 110 applications wow. for one job. Uh, and I've seen where there's been more, 200 uh, and plus. So that's very different than most of the economy. I mean, when I applied to be a janitor, there was one applicant. So how much do you take uh, your, your job prospects into consideration uh, before you, say, post on social media? Oh, none, because uh, no. it's not going to matter for my current job, and I don't think I have much of a chance of of, of getting an academic job, regardless of, of any of that. Simply, simply the statistical odds, right? So it, let's say everything's even, uh, which they're not, because I'm I'm older, uh, and the subject matter that I write about is not particularly uh, in vogue, uh, as is uh, my uh, methodology uh, and. Uh, but really the areas, so like political history has not been something that's been invoked for a long time. So, but even if it was all uh, even, right, you still only have between uh, one half and 1% chance. That's not very good. You might as well play the lottery. Now, you're not someone who, to the best of my knowledge, you know, embraces what are called conspiracy theories. But uh, on the other hand, um, Andy Nowicki, who you've done a lot of show, shows with, you know, does embrace what are called conspiracy theories. So what's it like um, doing these shows with, with someone who has a very different approach to the world? Uh, I like Andy. I've met him personally uh, in Lincoln, Nebraska. He came and saw me talk uh, for the 50th anniversary of the American Historical Society of Germans from Russia. Uh, when I first came back from Iraq. But uh, uh, 
you know, we when we when we did the last show, it was mostly on uh, kind of just reminiscence on uh, uh, 80s culture. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a political uh, edge to all that, but uh, I don't think we got really into conspiracy theories in that. But I, I find uh, Nowicki interesting, even though some of his ideas are off the walls, because he's kind of a throwback to the kind of old Art Bell uh, type uh, 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 figures that uh, eh, where you kind of have the kind of uh, uh, conspiratorial thinking, but it's not uh, uh, it's not systematized. So there's, it's not like there is a single conspiracy with a, with a single controller in, in in that type of worldview. There are multiple conspiracies. So y- you find entertainment and intellectual stimulation from engaging with uh, uh, some conspiracy theorists, even though you don't personally seem to hold any of what are popularly called conspiracy theories? Yes, because I I find their their, uh, point of view, one, interesting because it's, it's not mainstream. And two, while I may think that on the most part that they're wrong, uh, every so often, I'll find the little kernels and pieces that I think that are correct. Uh, so, I mean, uh, even a, a stop clock is right twice a day. Now, you've got a tweet here. You mentioned you've been blacklisted from working at universities in the U.S. since 2006. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I don't have any hardcore evidence, but I've been told by people that, yes, that the article I wrote uh, comparing... Uh, Israeli and Soviet ethnic cleansing uh, got me uh, pretty much blacklisted from working in the U.S. because uh, uh, the Soviet-Israeli ties from the 1947 to 1955 are things you can't bring up in public or academia in the U.S. Yeah, that that doesn't strike me as absurd. What you just alleged, like I, I you know, I have no evidence either that you've been blacklisted, but it's certainly not. A popular topic to you know, write a write a paper on. Uh, did you realize at the time the consequences, the possible consequences for you of publishing this paper? No, because I came from Great Britain back to the U.S. and in Britain it wasn't a problem. There were, in fact, that's where I got the material. Most of what I got was stuff that had been published in Great Britain. Uh, as translations from actually Hebrew. Uh, they've been written by Israeli scholars and then translated into English. And and so do you think, uh, Matt, the Twitter account History Speaks, PhD student at the London School of Economics, uh, pro-Palestine in his sympathies, but you know, far from being a supporter of Hamas, do you think he is putting his future job prospects as a historian at risk by publicly taking a pro-Palestine line? It could be. I mean, again, I don't have any direct insight in exactly how these things work, but yes. Um, I mean, I'm, you always hear these stories, uh, supervisors telling uh, their students that uh, while it may not hurt you, there's no gain to be writing uh, a dissertation that is sympathetic to the Palestinians. Uh, so. That's uh, one of the reasons why, as I said, you, you see more uh, of the more kind of 
controversial stuff in other countries, including Israel itself, where the, uh, the historians uh, seem to have, in some cases, more leeway to criticize Israel than in the U.S. But uh, you, you know, it's not. It, I would say that yeah, he probably has put himself on on the radar as somebody that uh, has uh, a number of disagreements with existing. Uh, academics who would have power within a, a, a search committee. Now, uh, he may be able to find a job. I can't, like, you know, I'm not going to say that uh, he's doomed himself completely, but uh, if he was uh, only about uh, career uh, rather than his uh, having a, a strong, uh, I guess, moral position, uh, he would have been better off, I think, uh, just uh, not mentioning it. Uh, uh, and not that that's the only thing he's done. He's done a lot of uh, conversations, uh, I guess the words say, or debates with uh, Holocaust deniers. Uh, and I'm not sure that really helps him either. Uh, not that his, what he said in those things is, is controversial, but just the interacting with those people. Now, at uh, Harvard University, I think the day after the October 7 attacks by Hamas in southern Israel that apparently killed about 1,400 Israelis. Uh, approximately 32 Harvard clubs came out and said that this conflict is 100% of the fault of Israel. Then there were all these uh, billionaires who said they were no longer going to fund you know, Harvard in any way or um, establish chairs that they were they were subsidizing at Harvard, and then you had uh, students' names and faces being put up on on trucks that were driving around the the Harvard campus, and you had billionaires on Wall Street saying we should never you know hire any student who signed on with this pledge saying that the Hamas attack was that 100%. was in the law school, right? Yeah. Any thoughts? Um. Uh, well, I mean. Harvard has a huge endowment, so the billionaires cutting off their, their funding isn't going to hurt it in the in the short run, uh, and maybe not even in the medium run. But uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised that there was so much open uh, support of the Palestinian side and uh, uh, demonstrations against the Israeli action on U.S. university campuses. Uh, such things have happened in Great Britain, of course, and in Europe, uh, but I don't remember uh, in the U.S. it being being a, an issue that motivated people to to take to to demonstrate before. Uh, but again, I was out of the country for for twelve years, so it may, it's this shift seemed to have occurred kind of uh, during that time as far as the the framing and, and outlook of, of many people. So much of the Democratic Party's funding comes from Jews and about a quarter of Republican funding comes from Jews. But the rank and file of, of Democrats seems to be much more pro-Palestinian than pro-Israeli. You think I'm, I'm touching on things that are reasonably accurate here? Yeah, I do. Um, well, first of all, uh, it is not uh, controversial that the relations between Jewish Americans and Black Americans have not always been smooth. Uh, and of course, 
Black Americans are one of the core constituencies of the Democratic Party, and the number of uh, Black uh, Americans uh, that are politically uh, active as far as uh, leading uh, interest groups uh, in the Democratic Party uh, are not favorable to, to the Israelis. So these people like Cornell West, actually probably going to run third party. Uh, but you can see there's kind of the black intellectuals since maybe the late 60s, and kind of a third world solidarity have been much more pro-Palestinian, pro-Arab than they have Israeli. Uh, I think uh, also there's the growing Arab population uh which isn't very large, only about 1% of the U.S., but it's concentrated in Michigan, which is a uh, pretty important state as far as electoral votes. So you see people like Oshida Tlaib, who is a Palestinian ancestry from Dearborn. That's a pretty safe seat. Uh, they, there's no way that uh, a pro-Israeli lobby could uh, really unseat her from uh, an Arab-majority district. But what do you think is the future of American support for Israel? It seems to me that the demographic trends are against the same yes, intense of level course. of support there, for there Israel. Are, uh, the blacks, a lot of them are hostile. Uh, as I said, kind of the third world solidarity uh, among the intellectual class of the uh, African-American community. And also, Hispanics tend to just not care about the issue at all. Uh, but insofar as there are radicals uh, that uh, not so much among Mexicans, but we see them among Puerto Ricans more often in some of the northern states, uh, AOC is a good example, uh, tend again to have this kind of third world, this solidarity idea. That, uh, so they tend to be more pro-Palestinian than Israeli. So yeah, big chunks of the democratic base are from uh, demographic groups uh, where the, their own leadership within uh, those communities uh, is much more favorable to the Palestinians than the Israelis. And that's where a lot of the votes for democratic politicians uh, have to come from. And uh, Barack Obama, I think, is would have been more favorable to the Palestinians, but he, he probably felt boxed in by the blob. He feels like he was outboxed by the American foreign policy establishment. Uh, Joe Biden, on the other hand, has long been very pro pro Israel. Well, possible. I mean, Richard Nixon commented, you know, that he felt that he was constrained in the Middle East by uh, special interest groups as well. That he, he couldn't uh, push through uh, a decisive peace. I, the Rogers plan was was, was never. Uh, fully backed, but it was uh, the first kind of comprehensive piece, uh, but it didn't get the, the support uh, because of a variety of institutional reasons, but uh, it was obviously uh, a peace agreement that would have been more favorable to the Palestinians than the existing status quo at that time, and much more so than the current existing status quo. So I just expect most people to instinctively side with their side. So I expect, That's true. you know, Arabs to instinctively side with, with Arabs. I expect uh, Persians to instinctively side with, with Persians. I expect uh, Jews to instinctively that, side with Jews. Is that? That makes sense. But uh, it's not 100%. So 
I'm sure you've noticed that among these pro-Palestinian uh, commentators and pundits, uh, a number of them are actually practicing Jews, but they're they're opposed to the Israeli actions in Gaza. Well, yeah, I would expect any Jew who is more devoted to a liberal left perspective on life than a a tribal perspective on life, then they should be negative towards the Jewish state because the Jewish state is at least in in part a, an ethnic state and as a man of a liberal left orientation you're not going to be down with ethno-nationalism is that is that fair yeah yeah I agree but but you you have people that are obviously uh, of the Jewish ethnicity uh, and in some cases of Jewish religious practice uh, as I said uh, so I mean that and that split uh has existed since before the state of Israel. There was always a, a small group of uh, anti-Zionist Jews. Were you surprised by the ineptitude of the Israelis in shocked ability to defend themselves on October seven? I, I was shocked because I and you know there's a lot of conspiracy theories which I'm not buying that the Israelis allowed it. But the alternative is that they became so complacent that they were unable to stop uh, the type of attacks that they've been stopping since uh, really 1949, right? So if you look at their history, they've had a pretty good record of stopping border incursions. There's never been a case where they've managed to go into cities and start killing people in their own houses and attack military bases. Uh, so I don't know what exactly went wrong. I, I'm hesitant to say that it was deliberately allowed so that they could have a solution uh, to the problem of Gaza by by uh, forcing the population out into Egypt. But the reaction compared to their historical record shows a huge decline in abilities to stop simple infiltration attacks. Yeah. And I mean, Israel's ability to achieve peace with various Arab states depends upon the aura, the signal that Israel is here to stay. And the absolute ineptitude of the Israeli defense and security apparatus on October 7, you know, throws that into doubt, does it not? And therefore reduces the incentives of Arab states to make peace with Israel. Well, yes, because I mean, before this, the only, oh, you had Hezbollah, but the only Palestinian uh, military action that uh, they could point to, where they could like say, we, we were able to stand up to the Israelis was Karama in 68, in which the Jordanian army abandoned this, this, this post and the Palestinian fighters were able to prevent the Israelis from capturing it. So this is purely a, a defensive move rather than an offensive one like we recently saw, right? But they were pointed to this for decades. See, we, we did okay against the Israelis once in 1968, but this was much more effective. This was a successful offensive into uh, the territory of Israel that was established in 48. Uh, and they managed to kill quite a few Israelis uh, on their own territory and advance into areas that uh, obviously in the past they would never have gotten to 
uh, they would have been stopped by the Israeli defense forces. So this is, I think, was the, the, the gamut. If they could have something like this, the, the, for centuries, they can always point to it and say, the Israelis are not uh, invincible. We, we, we managed to, 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 to cause a, a great damage to them once. <laughs> Yeah, and so I mean, if Israel looks weak, then they're much more vulnerable as opposed to when Israel looks strong. Also, Hamas. Well, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, the, the, I mean, one of the things about if you can stop the attacks before they start get into the interior, especially, I mean, you know, at most before we were talking, you know, dozens of people killed. This is fourteen hundred people killed. Uh, you lose your deterrent effect because now it, it says, well, if a mosque can do it, then maybe Palestinian Islamic Jihad can do it, right? So, and if they can do it, maybe the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine can do it. It's an incentive for everybody to try. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and Hamas also had to signal something too that it was relevant, right? What? Hamas had to also has to send out signals that it's it's relevant that it can affect you know. Well, absolutely. Reality, and as I said, the, the kind of the what everybody kind of thought was this was going to happen. Kind of the consensus view of the future was that uh, the Palestinians were going to remain cooped up in Gaza and the West Bank and not be able to effectively take any action against the the Israelis. While at the same time, the Israelis uh, within Israel itself uh, were strengthening uh, themselves, um, certainly demographically, with the uh, increase in Jewish birth rates uh, and the increase in the Jewish percentage versus uh, Arab citizens of Israel, but also doing quite well economically, about ready to establish uh, open uh, trade with Saudi Arabia. Uh, how? What, what's the status of the boycott? divest sanction movement that it has elicited such strong opposition in the United States makes me think that this has been a very effective tool against Israel. It could be. Uh, I don't know anybody the, personally that's uh, uh, participating in it. Uh, I don't, there's not like a, a huge number of Israeli goods that uh, American consumers come across. Uh, I mean, I see see Sabra Hummus, and that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head that is, is uh, carried in our, our store. But uh, I suppose if you were to if it were to be organized the way the anti South African one was, and you start having universities get rid of stocks that have uh, investments in Israel and that type of thing, uh, that it would start to put a squeeze on Israel. But uh, it hasn't had the type of effect that the South African uh, movement had uh, yet. Uh, but again, uh, the framing has shifted such that it is possible uh, because it appears now that among some elements of the U.S. population, there is an active uh, pro-Palestinian uh, organization, even if it's not very strong. Uh, this is considerably more than existed uh, during the first and second intifadas. Now, Israel is strongly incentivized to be 
fairly brutal in its put down of Hamas because does it not need to signal to its enemies this is what we'll do to you if you hurt us? So there's, there seems to be a whole lot of signaling going on that is leading to you know thousands of dead people. Uh, I suppose the part of it is signaling to try and reestablish deterrence, but also I think their 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 ultimate goal is they would like all of or as many as possible of the Palestinians living in Gaza to be moved out of Gaza. Uh, so there's the idea of resettling them in Europe or the United States if they can't force them into Egypt because the Egyptians won't uh, open the border, right? So that type of mass movement of people requires quite a bit of violence usually. People don't generally uh, all leave their homeland uh, without uh, either a massive push factor or a massive pull factor, right? So the bombing is a massive push factor, right? If it's, uh, well, if we stay here, we'll get bombed. Uh, we have to leave. Uh, you can convince more people to leave. So I, I think they're trying to, as much as possible, as I said, reduce the population there by forcing them to go elsewhere. So if you had 10,000 dead, if it gets up to say 50,000, Right. That may incentivize when it comes by, you know, 500,000 Palestinians to, to, to move elsewhere out of the out of Gaza Strip. And if enough leave elsewhere, uh, they can get to the point where they can be replaced by Jewish settlers. And you kind of have uh, a permanent solution because you end up like what happened with the borders of Israel in 48, 49. Only 10% of the uh, population uh, of Israel in 1950 was Arab. So the other 90% were Jews. Uh, and the reason there was only 10%, of course, is they had either fled during the war or been uh, physically expelled uh, across the borders. And this created a much more homogenous uh, territory demographically than had existed before the 48 war. And what are the chances that uh, settlers drive out uh, West Bank uh, Palestinians. They seem to be very intent on making life as difficult as possible for Yeah, I think that's the, the same Bank. idea behind there, but it's a much slower process because the Palestinian Authority cannot damage Israel the way Hamas can. So it's not as, the West Bank is not as high a priority. Uh, what do you think about the notion that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East? Well, I'm not a big fan of democracy, but there are other states that have uh, democratically elected uh, leaders and, and, and legislatures in the Middle East. So the Turkish Republic, uh, as flawed as it is, has been a parliamentary system since 1923. You have a, a parliamentary system in Lebanon that uh, uh, probably gives too much power to the people because it's broken apart in the civil war in the past, but uh, it also has the, the, the same type of procedural parliamentary system uh, of government uh, that we associate with the democracies. Uh, there are more restricted forms of uh, elected government in Iran uh, and uh, Iraq has elections, but it's so corrupt, I guess I'm not even sure where to, where to put, put the government in Baghdad. Uh, so it's not the only democracy, 
It's maybe the only democracy that also has a very liberal society, because even in Turkey, uh, which is a secular state since Ataturk, uh, you still have a lot of conservative Moors uh, that come from the Islamic uh, influence, uh, whereas uh, in many ways, uh, Israel is like a post-war European state in kind of its social attitudes. And also, Israel has fairly independent judiciary. Is that fair? That's correct. Yes, yes, yes. You have judges that will go against the executive branch. Uh, in, in Israel, there have been a number of rulings uh, where the policy established uh, by the ruling party in the Knesset through the prime minister has been uh, overturned by the Israeli Supreme Court. Uh, so, yeah, they may be the only country that has that in the Middle East, uh, which is, I'm not sure if that's democracy or a check on democracy, since it's acting against the Knesset majority much of the time. Uh, why is there so much United Nations condemnation of Israel? It has to do with the fact that the United Nations is composed of states, so each uh, existing government of an independent state gets a vote. So this meant that basically the Second and Third World Alliance, the basically uh, the non-aligned movement and the Soviet bloc had a very large number of votes and they were kind of the ones that uh, adopted. So they, if you look at the non-aligned movement, they have a number of kind of mom and pop issues that are bought by different factions uh, geographically. So apartheid in South Africa was bought by the Africans. Uh, you had uh, Palestine was kind of the Arab equivalent of their issue for these blocks. So basically uh, all of the socialist countries and most of the former uh, colonies in Asia and Africa uh, had this kind of uh, pro-Palestinian stance in the UN. And for a lot of these countries, uh, it's kind of just remained because they haven't been convinced uh, to change it for, for any reason. Uh, do you think uh, Hamas is going to learn to be more LGBTQ friendly? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually don't think so. Um, I, I think that whole thing about LGBTQ is kind of a, a red herring. It is true that Israel is probably the only state in the Middle East where you can be openly gay, but that's, the conflict is not about that. The conflict is about land. The conflict is about uh, ethnicity. The conflict is about uh, uh, who controls, uh, you know, that little strip of land on the Levant. And if you go back to the original uh, first war that were in 1948, I, I mean, I know there were conflicts before, but this is the first big one. And the Israeli, well, the Zionist win and established the state of Israel. Uh, it was quite clear then that the major reason for fighting was uh, which ethnic group controlled the land. It wasn't even at that time 
capped in religious terms because uh, people like Ben Gurion uh, and the Labour Party around him, uh, they only looked uh, at religion as a, a way of providing historical uh, backing to their claims, but they, they weren't they weren't uh, in any uh, sense trying to create a, a theocracy as opposed to a uh, a, a I guess ethnocracy would be the, the term, right? A, a state in which Jews were the overwhelming majority and therefore uh, their will would be expressed through democratic institutions and not the will of the Arab population. So uh, political scientist John Mearsheimer suggests that much of the antipathy towards Putin and Russia is that one, Putin and Russia are blamed for the 2016 election of Donald Trump, for which, incidentally, there's no evidence that that was a decisive factor. And second, that uh, Putin and Russia are not LGBTQ friendly. Uh, do you think that, that, that these two factors are significant in American antipathy for Putin and Russia? A part of it. I, I, I think there are other things going on, but... Uh... I think the main thing is uh, there is a lot of desire by people in the U.S. government to uh, make sure that Russia does not uh, recreate the type of influence that the Soviet Union had. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, so they would like to uh, go back to the kind of situation under Yeltsin where uh, the Russians had very little influence uh, compared to what they had historically uh, with their neighbors and that the, therefore allowing openness for the United States and, and Europe to influence those places. But uh, it's obviously not acceptable to the Russians to have a large amount of American influence on the former Soviet republics on their border. Now, I heard uh, John Mearsheimer, he was asked by economist Glenn Lowry, uh, did not Putin's invasion of Ukraine February 4, 2022, did not that both violate just war doctrine and international law? And Mearsheimer said, yes, it violated both just war doctrine and international law. But this is what we need to understand. When a nation feels that its existence is at stake, which, which Russia seems to, with uh, the constant encroachment of, of NATO up to its borders, uh, it will lash out, even if that violates uh, just war theory and international law. And that seems to be a pretty accurate understanding of how the world works. If a nation feels itself at threat, its leaders and its people overwhelmingly will be quite willing to violate international law and just war theory to try to fight for their survival. Do you think that's an accurate read of reality? I think not only that, I think in, in most cases uh, where you have military intervention, the, the, the intervening power does not really care about the, these international laws except just for optics reason uh, or morality. I and mean, people try and put these conflicts into kind of moral frameworks for appealing to people who are undecided, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the, the that's not going to convince any of the hardcore partisans because the fact is, right, if you believe uh, that the end justify your, the means for your 
cause, then this is all kind of irrelevant. And if, like you said, it's an existential issue, then it's even more irrelevant. So uh, it, it, these are, I guess, these are kind of just a, kind of a propaganda appeal to try and get undecided people. Right? But obviously, in any of these cases, uh, the Russians obviously were not, uh, didn't intervene in Ukraine because they, they, they wanted to be viewed as humanitarians. Uh, they intervened because they, they thought that uh, uh, Ukraine was uh, becoming too, uh, far too close to NATO for uh, Russian uh, geopolitical interests. Uh, same, I mean, in the Middle East, obviously, uh, Hamas did not care about uh, human rights. And, and, and in the response uh, to them, Israel doesn't either. This isn't how really it's framed for their own uh, domestic audiences, right? They're using other issues, uh, ones that are more salient to them. But as a general rule, you, you're not going to have somebody say, well, I'm, I'm going to war so that I can, you know, uh, preserve uh, human rights. That's generally just a, a facade for, for, for consumption. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that the United States has increased its odds of being victimized by another 9-11 style attack by its you know, very public stand with, with Israel in this latest conflict? It's increased its danger of terrorist attack. I don't know how much or how, or how big they might be, uh, but certainly uh, it's not it's not unnoticed by Hamas and similar organizations that, uh, that the Israelis are heavily backed and supported by the United States. Right? And but it may be that the United States, uh, because we're further away and uh, a more difficult target in some senses, it, it may be that uh, the Europeans are the ones that bear the brunt, which is what happened in the 70s after the Israeli victory in 1967. There was a whole string of Palestinian terrorist attacks in Europe, not the United States, because Europe was just much easier for them to uh, work in. Uh, why have the, the Shia and Iran abstained from launching attacks in the United States? Is it just a matter of ease? There are a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, again, I think they don't want to provoke the United States to directly attack Iran. Uh, the Iranians might actually be able to prevent uh, successful U.S. occupation, but it would be at a huge cost. Uh, it would be even more damaging than the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, but also, strangely enough, I, I think uh, the Iranians, uh, because the government itself has been hostile to the U.S., I think the Iranian populace itself, uh, people who the Iranian government uh, rules over, uh, are more uh, pro-U.S. than many of the Arab populations. But but Iran could hurt the United States much more th than it has. I know Iranian oh, proxies, definitely. They could. but they could be devastating. It, it could, but it would, would do a number of things they don't want. One, it would make any type of reconciliation, the types of getting unfreezed assets and whatnot, uh, much more difficult 
uh, take much longer. And it could very well uh, provoke U.S. retaliation against Iran itself, which would be quite uh, damaging. Right? So even if the United States, for instance, had a limited uh, military strike, say, against the southern coast of Iran, uh, it could take out the, the, the oil terminals and cause a huge amount of damage to Iran. Uh, could the United States achieve successful regime change in Iran? That I don't know. It would be very difficult. We could do a lot of damage to Iran. Whether we could uh, overthrow the Islamic Republic or not, I don't know. Uh, it, would be, it would be probably a Pyrrhic victory. We probably have to spend a lot of resources, including uh, human ones, to accomplish that. So I think it's fair to say that uh, tens of thousands of Israelis have been moved out of southern Israel. They've been moved out of northern Israel. So Israel right now sees the October 7 Hamas attack as an existential threat. It would be the equivalent of Californians having to move out of California uh, because of some you know, terror operation in, in Mexico. And the United States wouldn't just, you know, make peace with, okay, Californians ha have to move. But uh, Israel experienced these, these October 7 attacks as an existential threat to, to its existence as it knows it, you know, particularly in southern Israel. Otherwise, they would not have moved over you know, 100,000 people out of these, these towns. Is that fair to say? Well, I don't know if it's an existential threat to the state, but certainly the fact that the Hamas was able to move in and, and kill uh, Israelis in Israeli towns. Uh, we're not talking about uh, settlements on the border here. Uh, obviously, uh, as I said, I found it shocking that it was, was able to be done. I didn't think Hamas had the capability. Uh, but this is obviously something very different from what has existed uh, before. So yeah, uh, you have now for the first time since uh, 73, an enemy uh, making headway uh, militarily into is Israeli territory that we thought was, uh, that was uh, established under uh, Jewish rule uh, by the armistice of 49. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got a lot of people who, you know, feel like their backs are to the wall, which is, is why you've got the the intensity of the conflict and and until th there's some calm brought, you're just going to have a lot more loss of life, I would assume. Well, uh, I suspect so. that's true. Um, and as I said, I would have thought, and given the military record of the Israelis dealing with uh, infiltration and incursion by Palestinian uh, guerrillas and terrorists, uh, that they would have been able to stop such a, an attack, right? You wouldn't have gone to this point because you wouldn't have had 1,400 Israelis killed by Hamas. They wouldn't have moved, been able to move that far inland. You maybe had a couple dozen at most. Uh, so, yeah, it, it is, uh, for, I think, psychologically uh, a blow to the Israelis because the last time uh, the Arabs were able to uh, breach that level of safety for them was 1973, literally 50 years ago. And has has there been any improvement in your health from having to do this or this manual labor 
and uh, you know, working as a janitor. Has there been any what improvement? improvement yeah, because you have to exercise, I would assume. Oh, improvement in my health. Yeah, actually, I've lost quite a bit of weight, um, and my blood pressure has gone down a little bit. Unfortunately, um, and this is probably largely genetics. My my blood sugar was pre-diabetic. I've gotten it down some, but I still have to give up all the sugar. But I'm not sure whether uh, that's going to be a winning war or not, because uh, it's mainly genetics, not uh, not diet, it appears, that's causing it. Oh, boy. Okay, interesting. And uh, what have you been reading lately? Uh, well, I've been reading the Philip Kerr series of the novels about Bernie Gunther, who was a criminal uh, investigator in Weimar and National Socialist Germany. Uh, these are fictional, but based upon uh, historical research. Uh, unfortunately, the author is now dead, so there's going to be no new one. Uh, and I started reading because I found it on sale, but it's, I guess, topical. A Little Drummer Girl by Jean Le Carre. Yes. Is, yeah. Uh, it was originally done in the 80s, so back to the Nowicki uh, conversation, but... Uh, deals with uh, Palestinian terrorism and uh, Israeli retaliation. Yeah, that's uh, John Le Carre, just an absolute master, completely transcends the the, the spy genre to uh, just create... Uh, he's just so good at articulating different points of view, and he seems very... Well, I thought it was interesting, the yeah. new one version, he has an introduction where he talks about how he did the his, the research, right? So he's got like four pages on all these weird things he has to do to meet the various leaders of the PLO. Like, and, and, and sometimes it doesn't work. Like the guys don't, don't ever show up or, or whatnot. And then he has like a little paragraph that says, Israel was, was, was much different. I just phoned them up and arranged for an appointment, go there and be frisk, and then we talk. And that was it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, different time. I mean... That was when it was considered very, very socially deviant to talk to the PLO. Well, we said the problem was, because it was mainly in Lebanon, was that the, the PLO was, of course, rightfully paranoid because other Palestinian factions, various Lebanese factions, and of course the Israelis were always looking to uh, decapitate their leadership. So their leaders were always uh, very paranoid and secretive. So meeting with them was always difficult. Yeah. Okay, Otto, anything that you want to touch on before we wrap up for No, today? no, thanks for having me on, Luke. Yep. Uh, my book is distributed by Columbia University Press in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, if you're in Europe, then you can get it directly from the publisher, which is in Germany, Ibidem uh, Verlag, out of Stuttgart. And uh, I have a, a number of my smaller pieces on my Academia EDU page under Otto Pohl, if you'd like to see uh, short versions of that particularly that book i have a, a article from 2016 russian review that's kind of the, the kernel of it okay great good to talk to you Otto. take care man uh, you too luke okay man take care bye-bye okay that was historian jonathan otto paul a regular on this show since uh, 2018 and uh, influenced my thinking in many ways introduced me to some great books uh meanwhile let's get back to the terrific podcast 
if books could kill here is their critique of the 48 laws of power <laughs> i feel like you're there's a clever hans thing going on right i feel like you're picking up on the fact that the by far the biggest twist of the episode is that this story about galileo is like roughly true <laughs> and basically all of the anecdotes in this book are true mm. like i fact checked them i was like okay here's the part where i go googling around about <laughs> galileo and then i find out there's bullshit no they're real i mean as a researcher as, as a researcher for this podcast that is the worst yeah i know right? like now what do i do you're like one of these has to be fucking made up that's, this is my whole career you're destroying <laughs> now we just have to talk about the, the content of the book <laughs> i just learn things about historical figures jesus christ i love that this is the only author we've done so far that has integrity yeah, yeah clearly a, a sociopath but he has integrity after all of the historical examples he then gets to something called the keys to power where he lays out like the little lesson like what are the themes we're pulling out of this and i'm uh -huh. not gonna read it but in this one it's basically like galileo was good at sucking up to people who were essentially his bosses and so like be good at sucking up to your bosses yeah which ultimately is like fairly good advice i think if you're gonna do like office politics and shit like figuring out okay what does my boss want right what, what, what does he want from his boss and like how can i help give that to him it's like that's kind of reasonable no it's totally reasonable it, it's just that the like the framing of it is like here's what Galileo did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What he's really talking about is like the head of regional sales, yeah, yeah, yeah. get a coffee sometimes or whatever. Like that, that's how it translates yeah. to like a normal human being's life. So then he also does a weird thing. So at the end of every chapter, after he's laid out the lesson, he then has a section called reversal where it's like, well, sometimes this law doesn't apply. So in this one, he says, you can't worry about upsetting every person you come across, but you must be selectively cruel. If your superior is a falling star, there is nothing to fear from outshining them. Do not be merciful. <laughs> your master has no such scruples in his own cold-blooded climb to the top. Okay. So I, I mean, I guess you could say that there's like a kernel of decent advice in here, right? It's sure. like your boss is unfavored within the organization that you work for. Like, yeah, maybe don't be like, oh, I'm Jeff's guy. Like, when you yeah. Jeff, think of me. Like, it seems so far like you could rewrite this book with all of the same lessons, tone down like the language and framing, and it would just be called like how to get a 15% raise at your job. But then also, I mean, one of our kind of central critiques of these self-help books is that they give these overall rules of like, you should do this. But then obviously there's there's numerous situations where they don't apply, right? You can't uh -huh. actually give people meaningful advice unless you know the specifics of their situation. Yeah. Should I break up with my boyfriend? Sometimes you should, sometimes you shouldn't. Kind of depends on what your boyfriend is like. Mm -hmm. there, there's, no, mm -hmm. there's no like generalized advice about this kind of stuff, but it's so amazing to me that he just seems to realize that, right? He's like, always suck up to your boss, but sometimes you shouldn't suck up to your boss. Yeah, I'm still kind of impressed though that he's so rigorous. Like all, all the anecdotes appear to be like more or less correct. Yeah. He's hedging so that he doesn't get like too aggressive in his prescriptions yeah i can't wait for this to get weirdly sexist or whatever's about to happen oh peter i set you up so perfectly i was like i'm gonna make peter think that this is chill we're gonna cover the next 46 laws of power yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> in parts two through 24 <laughs> the next two years of books could kill. <laughs> so we're not obviously going to read all of the fucking 48 laws to like this extent i just wanted to get like the structure of the book down yeah from now on what we're just gonna talk about is like the patterns of the book okay. like all of these books it's unbelievably repetitive so at a certain point you're just like ah okay that goes in this bucket like i was just basically gooey decimaling the rest of the book shocking that he did not identify 48 distinct non-overlapping laws <laughs> <Yeah>. of power. <laughs> They're either repetitive or contradictory. <laughs> the first pattern that we are going to dive into is utterly sociopathic advice backed by irrelevant anecdotes. Hell yeah. So I'm going to send you the first couple paragraphs of Law 2, Never Put Too Much Trust in Friends, Learn How to Use Enemies. You often do not know your friends as well as you imagine. Friends often agree on things in order to avoid an argument. They cover up their unpleasant qualities so as not to offend each other. They laugh extra hard at each other's jokes. Don't trust it. Since honesty rarely strengthens friendship, you may never know how a friend truly feels. No honesty. He's, he's never had a friend. Right? <laughs> this man lives in John Gray's cave with him. He should never come out. I'm very upset by this. Like, sir, <laughs> you need... You need therapy so bad, dude. We're already at uni therapy. We're not too, Peter. So fast. <laughs> not too. Oh, God. <laughs> be wary of friends, but hire a former enemy, and he will be more loyal than a friend because he has more to prove. In fact, you have more to fear from friends than from enemies. If you have no enemies, find a way to make them. Go make enemies, Peter. You can just write that first paragraph about your friends and then show them that, then they'll be your enemies. <laughs> I just, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to circle back to the friend stuff, but I'm just so upset that he doesn't seem to understand that these are all, like, nice elements of a friendship. People who know you, people who like you. Right. Friends often agree on things in order to avoid an argument. First of all, I don't even know that that's true, mm. but, like, your friends being like, well, I don't really agree with what Michael just said, but, like, I know Michael. We don't need yeah. to fight about this. Yeah. That's, that's, like, a normal and good quality of a friendship. Mm -hmm. And also to say that... Okay, we got uh, an upset black woman writing a negative review of this podcast. 
The hosts themselves have said things I found offensive as a black woman. Notably, in the episode on the 48 Laws of Power, they joked about not being able to imagine Jay-Z reading that book. As if a black musician couldn't possibly be literate and intelligent enough to read a Robert Greene book. It was a very odd thing for the hosts to joke about. I find it tiresome and intellectually lazy how they perpetually fall back on blanket criticisms of sexism, racism, without exploring if those criticisms actually hold truth beyond their initial knee-jerk reactions. I am sick of their smugness and snark. I am not sick of their smugness and snark. I enjoy it. A couple of lefties who have created a fantastic podcast, If Books Could Kill. This is from their episode on the 48 Laws of Power. Honesty rarely strengthens friendship. Don't tell people stuff. It's, it's not just like, oh, does this guy have friends? It's also like, has he like read a book with right. their friends? <laughs> Just as a sociological phenomenon, right. as he like, Googled. Have you, like, seen a movie where two people have a, have a friendship? If you watch Goodwill Hunting, it's actually a speech that Ben Affleck gives. <laughs> the, the, what's funny about this chapter is that, like, the actual advice that he gives is just, like, if you need to do business stuff, don't hire your friends. That's, that's good not advice, terrible advice. Not, not because your friends are, like, evil and scheming. I know, but it's like he, he expresses it in, like, the most sociopathic way possible. But what we're diving into, Peter, you're, you're, you're seeing this, like, this kind of general rule of, like, friends are bad, right? And you're like, mm -hmm. okay, what example is he going to give, right? Because every law has these fucking anecdotes in it, right? And they have these, like, fables and shit on, like, the margins. Is this just going to be like Caesar? No, this is so he, he illustrates this with a fable okay. it's a little bit long but to me it's important to like really revel in the story and like get the full picture actually why don't i send it to you so this is like he says like african proverb or something i, I don't know where he's pulling this from africa a snake chased by hunters asked a farmer to save its life to hide it from its pursuers the farmer squatted and let the snake crawl into his belly but when the danger had passed and the farmer asked the snake to come out the snake refused it was warm and safe inside on his way home the man saw a heron and whispered what had happened the heron told him to squat and strain to eject the snake. When the snake stuck its head out, the heron caught it, pulled it out, and killed it. The farmer was worried that the snake's poison might still be inside him, and the heron told him that the cure for snake poison was to cook and eat six white fowl. You're a white fowl, said the farmer. He grabbed the heron, put it in a bag, and carried it home, where he hung it up while he told his wife what had happened. I'm surprised at you, said the wife. The bird does you a kindness, rids you of the evil in your belly, saves your life, yet you catch it and talk of killing it. She immediately released the heron and it flew away. But on its way, it gouged out her eyes. Oh, what is the lesson here? What? I don't even understand the ostensible <laughs> theoretical reason for the bird gouging out the wife's eyes. Exactly, she's the good one in the story. It's literally like, if you try to be nice, it will backfire because the person you were nice to will take advantage of you, possibly attack and try to kill you. What the fuck is this? Also, what was this snake's plan for the next several days? We're then, we're going to do one more of these, Peter. Okay. In Law 3, Conceal Your Intentions, he says, Most people are open books. They say what they feel, blurt out their opinions at every opportunity, and constantly reveal their plans and intentions. Many believe that by being honest and open, they are winning people's hearts and showing their good nature. They are greatly deluded. Honesty is actually a blunt instrument, which bloodies more than it cuts. Your honesty is likely to offend people. It is much more prudent to tailor your words, telling people what they want to hear, rather than the coarse and ugly truth of what you feel or think. During the War of the Spanish Succession in 1711, the Duke of Marlborough, head of the English army, wanted to destroy a key French fort because it protected a vital thoroughfare. Yet he knew that if he destroyed it, the French would realize what he wanted. Instead, he merely captured the fort and garrisoned it with some of his troops, making it appear as if he wanted it for some purpose of his own. The French attacked the fort and the Duke let them recapture it. Once they had it back, though, they destroyed it, figuring that the Duke had wanted it for some important reason. Now that the fort was gone, the road was unprotected, and Marlborough could easily march into France. What the fuck is what? It's not like it conceal your intentions is really, really good advice if you are in the midst of medieval warfare <laughs> the ability of that to translate to my everyday life where most of my interactions are with the kebab guy i just don't see it like what what does this even get me like in the workplace context this is what is so fascinating to me is like after i tried several times to read this book i did make it through one recent robert green book but uh i've tried various times to get through his books and, and given up i think their critiques are pretty fair here after a while 
the anecdotes get very repetitive. It's like ancient China, the Roman Empire, ancient Greece. He has mm-hmm. a bunch of stories of Nikola Tesla, like a ton of stories about Nikola Tesla. He has a bunch of like uh, Louis XIV, like French court, pre-revolution France things. Sure. He does not have, I'm not exaggerating, a single anecdote in this entire book from an office. <laughs> we'll give you this like, little aphorism. Like, oh, I see your intentions or something. And then the next paragraph will be like, in 252, the emperor so-and-so of China wanted to conquer the general something, something. And you're like, why am I hearing this? <laughs> I'm just picturing Jay-Z reading this shit. <laughs> that's why he has so many lyrics about the duke of marlborough (laughs) a huge percentage of this book is basically just like unbelievably oh oh gosh so racist thinking that a a, an accomplished black musician like jay-z would not be up to reading an intellectually formidable tome by robert green so racist sociopathic advice right law seven let others do the work for you but always take the credit no doubt law 12 use selective honesty and generosity to disarm your victim he uses the word victim throughout which i think is weird <laughs> in that law victim is like like your friend right yeah, like, like, <laughs> or like the, my co-worker who didn't get the promotion and i did right in law 14 pose as a friend work as a spy he has this whole thing about like crush your enemies completely and again you're just like robert i work at quiznos i don't have like enemies i'm trying to think of where this would apply the most and maybe it's like if you're like a cabinet member or something he actually uses a ton of examples from henry kissinger yeah and like yeah if you're the secretary of state and you're dealing with like weird conniving other heads of state and like you kind of are in some way engaged in some of these like power battles right then like yeah some of this stuff is useful conceal your intentions right like you, you've, you've sort of like literally dedicated your life to the pursuit of power right you're not coming into contact day to day with people who you're just trying to like build fulfilling relationships with right if you're living henry kissinger's life you are a sociopath and you have chosen yeah. <laughs> the life of a sociopath you know so i before we get to the other categories of information this book contains i just want to talk a little bit about like the specific kind of sociopathy that he's promoting here uh-huh. so in the intro he says Genuinely innocent people may still be playing for power and are often horribly effective at the game since they are not hindered by reflection. Once again, those who make a show or display of innocence are the least innocent of all. You can recognize these supposed non-players by the way they flaunt their moral qualities, their piety, their exquisite sense of justice. But since all of us hunger for power and almost all of our actions are aimed at acquiring it, the non-players are merely throwing dust in our eyes, distracting us from their power plays with their air of moral superiority. Uh, this is, this is just what? Republicans believe. Mm. You see it all the time in the language they use when they talk about virtue signaling, for example, Um, which, you know, I think you can say is a real thing, but they are obsessed with the idea that progressives who talk about morality and, you know, doing the right thing, et cetera, are faking it. And in fact, they have these devious plans. And that's because they accept this framing of the world where everyone is scheming out for power, out for themselves. Yeah. You yeah. can read a paragraph like this and the conclusion might as well be like, and this is why we need more police on the streets. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like either play the Game of Thrones or get Littlefinger blasted. <laughs> this is what he's laying out. I like how you did your own spin on an already perfectly sufficient line from Game of Thrones. <laughs> when you play the Game of Thrones, you live or you die. Okay, you could have just said that, but no. <laughs> you said finger blasted on the blue sky the other day and I was like, I don't know when I have heard that term other than like eighth grade and like right now. <laughs> That's such a disgusting term. This is what I get for doing a podcast with a straight man. It is. Because the last time, the last time I heard it was like a month ago. Okay, uh, <laughs> me and the boys talking <laughs> i did actually look this up because i, I, I was really I, I was really struck by this too of like this is a worldview that i do not recognize at all everything is this battle for power and even people who are acting kind right. have evidence that they're trying to manipulate me right i started looking around and there is an actual concept in psychology called zero-sum ideology uh-huh. and this is basically the idea that every single interaction between two people has to have a winner and a loser okay which is actually relatively widespread in the population you can read people these scenarios of like dave put his car on craigslist and then like jessica bought the car and then you ask me like okay who won the interaction i'm like oh dave won the interaction <laughs> right. there's, there's no reason to think of this as like one person won and the other person got cucked in that exchange it's just like yeah. two people engaging in a mutually beneficial activity but there, there there's obviously a spectrum and so on the sort of extreme cuck end where i am of this there are people who have what's called zero sum aversion where people actively avoid situations they're just objectively zero sum right if, if i win a tennis game you lose a tennis game and so people like me who are super conflict diverse just like don't really like playing tennis or like doing those kinds of competitive
Okay, let's uh, let's move to the topic. Uh, co-workers, can can they be your friends? Should they be your friends? Is your workplace a family? Also, I do want to caveat to say that I'm not saying okay, that you're professional the so that none of them bite you in the butt. Now, if you're ready to jump into it, you've got your tea, give me a thumbs up. There is a very good likelihood that you see your colleagues more than you see your own family on a week-to-week -week basis. That, that's true, right? I mean, you work a normal job. You're in the office 40 hours a week. You're going to spend far more time with your colleagues. And if they're not horrible... You're going to develop a, a connection with them to varying degrees. And so just the normal default that you're spending so much time around them, many of them are going to become friends. That's my experience. They become friends, but yeah, they're situational friends. And when you move on from that job, then very few of them are going to stay in your life. But I've gotten into trouble here. I have often sought inappropriate relationships in the workplace uh, because I didn't want to do the work. Instead, I wanted to like get tight and get deep with, with people instead of doing my job. And so uh, I, these are the type of videos that uh, a younger me really needed to hear because I didn't want to work. I just wanted to bond. I wanted to get deep. I wanted to reenact my... You know, my inner drama, I wanted to share laughter and love and light. And especially when you have one of those really close-knit office cultures in an open office when everyone's up in each other's business, it's really easy to cultivate these artificially close relationships. You're going through so many of the same things. You have so much common ground. But the thing that starts to the blur of the lines is where the professional line ends and where the personal line begins. Here's the thing. I want you to remember... I've had a lot of trouble with this. All right, I remember early on in therapy, one of the first things my therapist talked to me about was boundaries. I didn't really know much about them, but uh, I was just routinely violating other people's boundaries, like inappropriately touching them, inappropriately saying things to them. I was allowing other people, in fact, inviting other people to ride roughshod over what should have been my own normal, natural, healthy boundaries. And so even today, I'm still kind of stunned how I invite disrespect from you know so many people in real life and i'm creating that right i'm building that because i am showing way too much inappropriate levels of vulnerability this is uh, heidi pre or pain or breakups or whatever it is that has been painful for us interpersonally but i think that a lot of us have a kind of gut instinct around times when we feel like we should be over something by now but we're not and a lot of the time if the thing that we're having trouble getting this video really helped me because if you watched my, my videos, you know, I was like wondering why, why do I encourage disrespectful treatment in real life so often? Why do I encourage so many people to treat me in real life with, with you know, disdain and contempt? And it's because I am way overdoing the vulnerability. I am oversharing. I am seeking, you know, inappropriate relationships, you know, way too intense, like not, not appropriate to the context. And uh, I found this, this video by Heidi Preeb, graduate student in psychology. She's uh, researching attachment theory. I, this really helped me. This, this answered this question I had, why am I routinely getting treated with disrespect by people in my real life? Getting over is a situation. And I'm not talking about getting disrespected, you know, online. I just take that for granted. I mean, that's the, the whole 
you know, nature of the bargain that we're, we're making here together. I, I'm talking about in real life. Why? Why, oh Lord? And I am creating that by overdoing the vulnerability, inappropriately being vulnerable, inappropriately seeking inappropriately intense and inappropriate relationships in inappropriate places and times. In which we made ourselves vulnerable, but did not receive the response that we wanted or maybe were hoping for, or maybe it was a relationship that... Yeah, I guess I, I did that to try to manipulate people into liking me. We chronically made ourselves vulnerable within and we can't seem to move on. If this is the case for you, if you feel as though you have an abnormally difficult time moving on after showing your vulnerabilities. Ah, Brandon, great point. Boundaries never occur to victims of uh, child abuse. Yeah. I mean, I was, to the best of my knowledge, never sexually abused, but I was bounced off the walls for, for years. I was, you know, smashed about physically when I was a kid. And I still, to, to people who know me in real life, I still emit many of the signs of the, the beaten stray dog. You know that stray dog who's been beaten a lot and you simply, like, raise your hand to scratch your nose and the dog, you know, leaps and bounds away because he's so scared? I, I still remind many people of that beaten stray dog. It's probable that you are outsourcing too much when you share yourself vulnerably. So what do I mean by that? It might mean that when you go into a situation where you're sharing yourself with someone, when you are trying to make yourself open and telling someone who you are, you are not. Oh, apologies. I got, oh, thank God. Elliot Blatt is still, Elliot, Elliot, I hope I'm not being inappropriately vulnerable with you right now. Uh, no, no, you're not. Uh, I'm just having a big accident. I'm driving. Uh, blessings. This, this, this commentary, this, this commentary is terrible, Luke. You're, you're, you're really off base on this one, bro. These people are crazy. They don't, they're not worthy of reading such a book. The 48 Laws of Power? Yeah. They just don't get it. They're too dumb. They're too dumb to understand how, what the author is trying to communicate here. And they're just reading it at such a superficial level they're just giving like Daily Show tier, you know, ironic takes. They're not, they don't grasp the essence of what's being conveyed here. And really talk to us, what's the essence of the 48 Laws of Power? It's how the world works, bro. It's how the world actually works. And, and how did this book affect or improve your life and your understanding of reality? Dude, I stopped making so many dumb mistakes, so many naive mistakes. I still make mistakes, but I've been able to cut back on them, right, and not fall into these pitfalls that I used to fall into because I misunderstood power dynamics. It's really like it's the best software upgrade you can get for your brain, bro. Wow. That's powerful. I, I think you you, you got to stop listening to these glib leftists, bro. They're just they're they're bad for you. You got to you really you're really off base on this. You you really fallen into uh, error here, my dude. Uh-oh, I'm in error. And uh, I mean, talk to me. Give me give me more about how how this book has Im improved your life and allowed you to make Elliot great again. Okay, one is the courtier. How to be a courtier what it means to be a courtier and courtier, a courtier, uh, how you um, behave among people who have more power than you. 
like how what rookie mistakes you don't make like don't flatter don't use flattery flattery is uh will set you out when you become a marked man you have to be much subtler you have to learn how to navigate the subtle dynamics of being in a situation where there's one person that has much more power than you most people they lose jobs they don't get promotions they get fired you know they 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 just misplay their hand because they don't know how to be- I used to be like this. I didn't know how to act around powerful people. That's a really and, important lesson, bro. Yeah, talk to me more about more effective ways of acting around powerful people. Okay, you need you need to you all right, one is the first lesson, don't outshine the master, right? Yeah, don't outshine don't, the boss. Don't try to prove to someone with more power than you that you're more intelligent than they are. That's just a bad idea. Yeah. Don't try to don't try to take the stage away from somebody. You know, during a meeting, if they have the power, you have to you you. You remember uh, Trump's show way back when? I never really watched it much. Uh, yeah, you the, the Apprentice. You're fired. Yeah, you're that fired. That was a perfect example, right? Yeah. Those people were trying to navigate uh, a scenario in which they had to demonstrate competence, but they couldn't—they couldn't be—they couldn't show any rough edges of their character, right? And Trump was there at the center of it all, uh, you know, chastising them for one reason or another. But it's the perfect example of, you know, navigating power dynamics. So a while ago, I had a job where I was very, very busy. So when the important people would come ask me to do a task, I'd say, could you put it in an email? I'm just overwhelmed right now. And they didn't seem to appreciate that. No, no, right, right. And the thing is, it's like, yes. So if you're in a subordinate relationship, right? Yeah. And your employer... You're the person with more power is not looking for a friend. They want a subordinate. And you have to act like a subordinate. Even if you don't think you're, you know, a subordinate. If you don't act like a subordinate, you're going to cause problems. You're going to be shown the door one, one way or another, eventually. So if I tell them that the podcast that they like to listen to are moronic, uh, not a good idea? <laughs> That's not a good idea, bro. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I, I made that well mistake. Well played, dude. Well played. I made that mistake a few times. Also, I told the boss that his dog was ugly. Yeah. I said, like, wow, that's a really ugly dog. Luke, you want to be the gray man. Most of the time you want to be the gray man, and then you just want to sparkle at various occasions. But in your role, in your lane. Right? I tend to be the, Always like, the flamboyant, you know, the flamboyant you know, dancer, and it doesn't really go down well. Yeah. So I should probably read no this book. Either. You got to read the book. You got to read the marginalia. You got to read the notes. You got to read the introductions. You got to, you got to, it's one of the most interesting and original works, I think, that have ever been published. It's, it's really in its own category. Uh, it's incredibly literary. It draws incredibly from history. Uh, from literature, it's just uh, it's just too good for these retarded uh, commentators that you've been listening to. 
Uh, what are the chances that you've been conned by pseudo profundity? Something that sounds profound, but upon examination is not profound. Uh, th- that's you know, it's a reasonable question. I don't think it's applicable here. Um, uh, that's the <clears throat> remember. Leftists are by nature egalitarians, right? Nobody mm-hmm. should stick up. Everyone just has to be this just mediocre schmo, right? They want everybody within the herd, and they're going to, uh, you know, they're, it's the tall poppy. They're going to lop the head off the, they're going to lop the, the flower, the head off the tall poppy. And this is just an instance of their sort of dim, mediocre, lack of sparkle lives that they lead. It's just, a, it's just, just like a testament to their own mediocrity. Don't be suckered in by their retarded mediocrity, Luke. You're better than that, my dude. I also got into a lot of trouble for flatulence in their office. Like, they weren't even in the office. I just, like, went into the office, released my flatulence, you know, came back out. And then, like, 10 minutes later, they came in and they asked me if I'd been releasing flatulence in their office. And I think I tried to deny it, but they were pretty firm with me that uh, that was not a great place for me to release my flatulence. Another boss, like, threatened to throw me out of his moving vehicle at, like, 70 miles an hour because I, like, cut one loose. Like, so that's a really bad power move, I found, like, releasing flatulence in your boss's car or office. I really don't appreciate that. You're not. You're not even on the doorstep of being ready to read this book. You, you need like an elementary school education on these matters. I also got into a lot of trouble. I hung up on the boss's mother. She was kind of rude, and I got a reprimand. So that's not a, that's not a good thing to do. Don't hang up on your boss's mother. And well, what's the context? Why would you be talking to your boss's mother in the first place? Well, I had to answer the phones. And so she yeah. called, and she wanted to know a bunch of things, and I was just trying to put her off, and then she kind of caught me in some white lies. And then I said, look, i got to take another call, and I just hung up on her. But I, I, I just I modeled myself on how my boss treated his mother. Like, he treated her uh, like crap, so I thought I should walk in his ways. But I got a reprimand. That's a, that's a, very, that's a funny story, dude. Hey, are you going to stick around this winter, or are you going back to the uh, Cottage Coast? I, yeah, definitely mixed feelings. Uh, do do very much feel like, uh, you know, after all the stress and strain I've been under in 2023, maybe I need another three-month holiday down under. Yeah. <laughs> Just, it's the life of, you know, you have a charmed life you lead, Luke. I wish I could do that. It, it might be good off. for my gastrointestinal tract. I, I was, but I watched a video today and it talked about appropriate, inappropriate things to talk about at work, and it said uh, unprofessional is to talk about your gastrointestinal issues at work. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. This, I, I just assumed everybody knew this. Well, like um, if you had out of control diarrhea, like that's not something you should bring up in topic. the workplace. No, that's why, see, Luke, there's the types of conversations you have among your, your, your friends, you know, in a car, uh, 
um, you know, alone. So you can have those conversations in in in, in private. But in in in, uh, in the public in the workplace, you have to adopt a whole new persona, bro. Yeah, yeah, that's anyway, really good. Anyway, advice. read that book. At least listen yeah. to it. Listen yeah. to it. If you're not, if you're too tired to read it, it's yeah. all, the whole thing is on YouTube. And then compare that. You have to admit there's some like nuggets of wisdom in just those quotes that they were mocking. Don't you? Do you agree? I I read his most recent book and I did find nuggets of wisdom in there. So I'm kind of I read his other book, Mastery, which wasn't quite as good as the Forty Eight Laws of Power, but there were still some good things in it as well. So I think he's a very interesting author. Uh, he has some health problems. For, anyway. Hey, Did I, you read, I, 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 okay, I, bye. Blessings. All right, blessings. Bye. All right, bless. All right, bless. Thank you. Thank you, Elliot. Okay. Just approaching the situation in the present, you are putting a lot of meaning onto it. So you might be telling yourself, I'm going to open up to this person. And instead of just telling them the information I'm telling them and noticing how they respond to that, I'm going to tell myself this story around what it means about me as a person. Yeah, I haven't been taking like appropriate note of like what's appropriate to share and I just like spill my guts or you know say I'm really struggling with some things. And so this woman, Heidi Preeve, she's great. She also has a video on 10 green flags that it's probably safe to be vulnerable, which I found incredibly helpful. So she is a a font of of wisdom for me. So here she are, signs you're being overdoing Based on how they receive this information. So if I tell someone about something difficult I've been through, and they don't seem to care, or I feel like they're almost mocking me in response, if I've gone into that situation telling myself, I'm going to determine my worth as a person based on how this person responds to me, that's going to take an incredibly long period of time to recover from. Because I've put so much weight onto that one interaction, or onto a series of interactions with this person. If I was only looking to open up to them about one thing, and they were to receive it badly, and I didn't put any additional meaning onto them receiving it badly, other than this person doesn't seem to be open to or interested in hearing about this particular thing I'm vulnerable about, it still might hurt or kind of sting if you get the reply that you weren't hoping for, but it's not going to absolutely crush you. I mean, this is a terrific video. I won't play all 29 minutes, five signs you're overdoing vulnerability. That's me, like in real life, not talking about on the show, but in, in real life, inappropriate times, inappropriate places, you know, inappropriate people, you know, say inappropriate things is a bit of an issue I have. I've been Googling verbal impulsivity, and one of the tips is to write things down instead of just blurting them aloud. So here she is, 10 green flags that is probably hey safe guys, to be vulnerable. Hey guys, I'm Heidi Preeb. Welcome okay. to Precious. So in this video, we're going to talk about how to know when it is the appropriate time and with whom it is appropriate to be vulnerable with. This is, I found this incredibly helpful. You, you probably think, oh, you know, I already know this stuff, but this really helped me. I mean, I'm only 57. I've only been living in California 45 years. You know, I'm still struggling with the culture. Now, there is no perfect science to this. You can never guarantee that an instance of sharing something vulnerable with another person is going to end well or go in your favor. So what this video is going to talk about is how to make sure that you are at the least making a reasonably safe bet 
when it comes to opening up and becoming more vulnerable with someone. We're going to talk not just about how to identify the signs of a safe other, but also how to identify green flags inside of yourself that you are at a point where you are emotionally capable of opening yourself up to another person with respect to the fact that it might not go the way you want it to. Sometimes being vulnerable feels bad, doesn't go the way that we would hope, actually creates ruptures in our relationship that we can't find a way to repair. And so figuring out who it might be reasonably safe for you to practice vulnerable self-sharing with is going to be really instrumental in making sure that you are not... Uh, press one in the chat if you're a safe person for me to share reasonable vulnerability with right now. Press two if you're an unsafe person for me to share that vulnerability with right now. Thank you and God bless. Not senselessly harming yourself by being vulnerable in instances where it doesn't really help you or the other person to do that. So without further ado, we're gonna get into some of the signs or some of the green flags that it's a good time for you to start being vulnerable. And she is, is sleeved. I mean, she's got large number of tattoos and yet so wise with another person. So green flag number one in the other is that you have seen this person display a pattern of taking their own and other people's emotions seriously. So if we are looking specifically at emotional vulnerability, what we want to be... So I don't know about you, but I found not generally a good idea to blurt out to people you barely know in the workplace that you're a sex addict. I mean, that's just my experience. I don't know what your experience is like, but uh, that, that, that didn't work out well for me. Looking at in the other person is, do they have a pattern of taking emotions seriously? As opposed to kind of having a pattern of scoffing at, dismissing, or even... Yeah, I mean, if you go to your typical upper-class gay bathhouse, all right, they, they probably have a pattern of taking their own and other feelings seriously, probably that's like a green flag for you to become vulnerable. Expressing contempt towards their own or other people's more vulnerable emotions. And this is often a trait that you can observe just in everyday conversations or interactions. So I remember one time being in a conversation with two kind of new friends, and one of them was telling this story about how he was seeing this girl, and she was so obsessed with him. He liked her, but she wanted to get married and have kids, and he was so not into that. And the other friend looked at him and went, well, are you going to talk to her about that? That seems like a pretty important factor in whether or not you guys are going to continue in a relationship, so I'm surprised you haven't brought it up to her yet. And the stark difference in the emotional maturity there became instantly clear, right? Yeah, I mean, that's true. In the world, there are, you know, emotionally mature, wise people, and there are a lot of uh, emotional terrorists. And uh, that's a great anecdote illustrating the difference between emotional terrorist and uh, someone who is wise. If I were looking for someone to be vulnerable with and to share my feelings with, knowing that those feelings would be relatively safe and taken seriously by the other person, which of those two people 
would it make more sense to put my trust in? The one who has this kind of air of superiority and contempt around other people having feelings? Or the one who has a more balanced perspective? So little moments like these are the ones you want to watch out for when you're figuring out who it's safe to be vulnerable around. So green flag is that they don't think other people are weird or weak for having feelings and that you've observed a pattern of them treating other people's feelings seriously and with respect. Sign number two, and this one pertains to the self. It's a green flag that you're likely ready to be vulnerable with someone if you have a clear reason for why you want to be vulnerable with that person. And that. Yeah, I, I needed to hear that. I mean, you're probably a healthy person who didn't need to hear this, but I really needed to hear this, right? That there should be a good reason and that I'm sharing something vulnerable and that what I'm sharing is appropriate to the context of the relationship. Reason is appropriate within the context of your current relationship. So there are many good reasons to be a little bit more vulnerable in relationship. An example might be you are getting to know someone and you want to test out, what if I get a little bit more personal, a little bit more real with them? How are they going to respond? Because that's going to give you information about whether or not you're able to get closer with that person. Being close... I remember I shared in the workplace once that I like to leave like an audible book or audio book running all night because I don't like to be alone with my thoughts. My brain is a dangerous neighborhood that I don't like to enter alone. And this woman went, ah, you know, enough, no more about that. And so I had this friendly, you know, almost flirtatious work relationship with this very attractive young woman. But once she heard that I, I like to leave audio books running all night because I don't want to be alone with my thoughts. Uh, that was it. She just like, uh, she just, uh, she just dismissed me completely. Uh, I think she was East Asian. I think they tend to be a bit more conservative about these things, but she went, ah, stop. And, and I thought it was just such an anodyne thing to share. Boy, I am often a terrible judge of what's appropriate to share. Often means doing a little bit of that vulnerable self-sharing that is inherent to co-regulation a lot of the time. But you have to make sure that you are doing this in a way that is appropriate to the context of your current relationship. So if you are on a second date with someone, it might not be appropriate at that point in your relationship to let them know everything about your yeah, I have a history of sharing like way too much, like even before the first date, you know, let alone the, the first date, you know, I go deep and dark and uh, tends to be a little off-putting to some members of the fairer sex. Childhood trauma. We have to look at why we are sharing what we're sharing and whether or not it is the appropriate time and place to share that much. Am I sharing that much? Because I think it actually makes sense for them. So I find it most relaxing at night usually to listen to books on, on war. I just find it relaxing, like particularly World War II, uh, like naval battles in the Pacific. I just like to leave those, those running all night. Um, so here, this is, this is what I've been uh, listening to at night. Twilight of the Gods, all right, the Ian Toll trilogy on... U.S. battles in the Pacific during World War II. So for months, on and off, I've been leading, you know, leaving the, that trilogy just running all night. I uh, also like to leave uh, American Carnage by Tim Alberta about the 
Republican journey from 2008 to Donald Trump. I'd like to leave that running all night. I also love Reclaiming History by Vincent Bugliosi. I love to let that just run all night and, you know, wake up at various points during the Kennedy assassination. I just find it very calming, better than my own thoughts, much more wholesome. Okay, Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. I also find that, uh, you know, fairly calming and, you know, conducive to sleep. The Big Ones by Dr. Lucy Jones about various enormous natural disasters that killed thousands upon thousands of people. I find it very comforting and relaxing to let that run all night. Uh, American Prometheus about uh, Robert Oppenheimer, the guy who gave us the atomic bomb. I tried letting Middlemarch by George Eliot run all night, but uh, that was not conducive to my sleep. A World Undone about World War I, like a 20-hour audio book on the history of World War I, that was very conducive to sleep. Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes, not conducive to sleep. Pacific Crucible, War at Sea in the Pacific, 1941-42 by Ian Toll, highly conducive to sleep. I did not try The Power Broker uh, about Robert Moses. Did not listen to that. Uh, oh, Britain at Bay. So Britain in the first half of World War II by Alan Orport. So I already listened, read it once very carefully, and then just I found it comforting to let it run all night. The Conquering Tide, War in the Pacific, 1942 to 44. That was very uh, calming. Top of the Morning by Brian Stelter about the TV news business. I like letting that run all night. Uh, Days of Fire about the relationship between George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. Enjoyed letting that run all night. A Man in Fall, the novel by Tom Wolfe. The Mirror and the Light, so the Hilary Mantel trilogy. Often let that run all night. Uh, Stalin, Volume 1, Volume 2 by Stephen Cochran. Like letting that run all night. Have not tried the decline and fall of the Roman Empire at night. Uh, did not try on the origin of species. Uh, Bring up the bodies by Hilary Mantel. Let that run all night. Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. I would let that run all night. You are a comedy special. Have not tried letting that run all night. Uh, the Peloponnesian War. Have not tried that. The history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. Did not let that run. All- uh, the man who ran Washington. So the second time through, about James Baker, I let that run all night. Ah, The Five Families, about the five mafia families. That was very comforting to let that run all night. Uh, The Art of Storytelling, From Parents to Professionals, Writing Creative Nonfiction, did not let those courses run all night. But I did let uh, Manson, Biography by Jeff Gwynn. I found that comforting to let that go all night. Uh, Cloud Street, the novel by Tim Winton. Often let that run all night. Uh, I for years I, I would let Tom Clancy novels run all night. Upon reflection, I don't think that was a good idea. Uh, Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi about the Manson murders. That was that was calming and comforting to let that run all night. Okay, um, so those are those are the main books that I've let uh, run all night.
them to know that much about me on a second date? Or am I sharing all of this because in this moment I feel dysregulated? I'm unable to regulate myself around whatever memory has just come up or whatever. Uh, so probably half the time I listen to a kind of meek and mild, gentle uh, playlist that I quite imaginatively title Sleep. So I've got Agnes Die by Samuel Barber, Let Your Love Flow by the Bellamy Brothers, Rainy Days and Mondays, Superstar by the Carpenters, Top of the World Under Yesterday, Yesterday Once More, I Need to Be in Love, and All You Get from Love is a Love Song by the Carpenters. It's on my sleep playlist. You've only just begun. They long to be close to you. Sing, right, or by the Carpenters. Uh, Linger by the Cranberries, Miracles by Jefferson Starship. I've got... Four songs by John Denver on my sleep playlist. Take Me Home, Rocky Mountain High, Sunshine on My Shoulders, Any Song. Got Faithfully by Journey, Songbird by Kenny G, The Captain by Casey Chambers, Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen, Tenderfield Saddler by Peter Allen, Early Morning Rain, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Laughing With by Regina Spector. It Must Have Been Love by Roxette. Wait, is this my, yep, this is my sleep playlist. Abide With Me, The Hymn, Kiss Me by Sixpence, None the Richer, Theme from Love Story. The Best of Times by Sticks, Babe by Sticks, You Raise Me Up by Susan Boyle, uh, the entire Chariots of Fire soundtrack, uh, also Vangelis, a lot of Vangelis on my sleep playlist, uh, Ang Ong Ka by Snatam Kaur and Ong Namo by Snatam Kaur, Can't Stay Away From You by Gloria Estefan, Words Get In The Way, Leaving New York by R.E.M., Cheers theme song, Nearer My God To Thee by Libera, uh, a lot of Debbie Friedman songs like Bahu, Made the Words, Yevarecha, Shir Hamalo, Verstiki Lee, Wedding Vows, Yumi Lak, Ufaratza, Free Association, You'll Never Catch the Wind, Imter Tzu, Eliyahu, Dodi Lee, Eight Dodim, Arise My Love, Ashamru, Havat Olam, Mika Elenu, Laugh at All My Dreams, Ani Mamim. So I've got about 60 Debbie Friedman songs. Morning into Dancing, Rukh Shamar, Ashray, Hallelujah. I got about 60, 70 songs by Debbie Friedman and the You Shall See Visions, Shekiyanu, Mika Moka, Hodu, Rukh Abod. Uh, so I guess I got 100 songs by Debbie Friedman on my sleep playlist. I got about 40 numbers by Snatam Kaur, including By Thy Grace, Longtime Son. Guru Ram Das Rako Sarana, and who can forget her classic Jap Man Satnam, and Et Kong Ka Satnam, and Mul Mantra Jap Man Satnam Ong Namo Long Time Sun. Right, so I've got 174 songs, 12 hours of one minute on my on my uh, sleep sleep playlist feeling I'm experiencing. So I'm putting it all on the table and hoping that they can help return me to equilibrium. The big things, the things that are very raw and intense, for most people don't come up until the relationship is already fairly established. That doesn't mean you can't reference difficult things you've been through. However, if you're looking to do really big, intense co-regulating with a person you don't know that well, it's- Hey, is that what we're doing here? Are we doing really deep, intense co-regulating? It's highly likely that you might need to do some work on adjusting your own boundaries 
to make sure that you're not practicing reckless vulnerability. Yes, I definitely need to do some work adjusting my own vulnerabilities, my own boundaries, because I'm doing way too much reckless vulnerability. Reckless vulnerability is when we are not establishing boundaries around who it is and is not safe for us to be vulnerable with. We are simply handing over all of our psychological stuff to anyone who we think will listen because we don't know how to self-regulate around it. Yeah, that's, that's my life story. Ourselves. And if you struggle to figure out where the limits are in this capacity, try asking friends, loved ones, maybe a therapist if you're able to talk to one, what they think is appropriate in terms of how much to share when in a relationship. I, I like to ask Elliot Blatt. But the important part here is that if you are able to zoom out and put in proper context why you're sharing, what you're sharing, when you're sharing it, you're also going to be able to properly contextualize whatever response you get. So if you are sharing something with someone because you're trying to get to know them better and you test it out and you find that they're kind of closed off or that they have a reaction that doesn't make you feel very good in response to what you shared, now you have information, right? You learn, okay. She's great. I love this woman. She has so much wisdom for a person who's got mad number of tattoos. And this woman's great too. Jennifer Brick, co-workers are not your friends. Who knew? Why people are there at work. I would say that everyone is there because they need a paycheck. Now, need a paycheck, want a paycheck, whatever it is, it's all a matter of semantics. People are at work because they want to get paid. They are there to make money or they are there because they are trying to build success for themselves professionally. Trust me, if neither of those things mattered, they would just be volunteering or staying at home on their couch with some bomb buns and some Dr. Phil. I don't know, maybe that's just me. Now here's the thing, between those two different options where someone is there just to get paid and to go home, and between the person that is there because they want to climb the ladder, the first person might not be personally invested in that company and in the people that they work with, where the second person might be so invested in their own success that they are willing to throw their best friend, their mother, their cousin, their sister, whoever under the bus to get there. You don't want to be someone who gets caught in that pathway. Now also with all of the in-between, every workplace has its gossip. And one of the ways that you become ensnared in the gossip is to be talking about yourself and things that don't have any place in a professional setting. I swear to God, I just felt the thumbs down buttons being clicked right now. But I think that this is really important for you to hear because the people that you're friends with and work, even though you spend all of your time and maybe you have happy hours with them and you have your team events, the thing is at some point, one of you is going to move on going to be exceptionally rare for that person to stay in your life in a meaningful way. If you ever watched Fight Club, you know the reference of a single serving friend. A work friend is just basically a single serving friend who has multiple servings as long as you happen to go to the same office to work at every single day. Now, does it mean that that person is going to fall off the face of the earth if you no longer work with them and never speak to you again? No, but you're probably not going to speak to them all the time. You're probably not going to see them all the time. And yes, there are exceptions, but trust me, you probably know the difference between the exception and the rule. 
but I want you to treat those real, authentic, and life-changing friendships that can be formed at work as the exception rather than the rule. And in fact, I actually believe that more of the relationships that you have at work are likely to form into those really substantial personal friendships when you follow these guidelines. And that's why you need these three guidelines to be friendly, but not friends at work. The first guideline is knowing where to draw the line. I'm never going to be one of those people that advocates for you being totally closed off, all business all the time, super professional, don't talk about your personal life at all. No, you work with these people every single day. You probably want them to know a little something about you. You probably want to know a little something about them as well. And if you don't, totally cool, but then you're probably not watching this video in the first place. Here's the thing, ultimately you are going to have to navigate for you where the lines are between your personal and your professional life. You also need to learn where the lines are. So press one if this is just common sense to you, because I, I didn't really realize this. For the people around you. And for this, I really encourage you to keep it superficial. I encourage you to run the things that you share through a filter. Does this make me look professional or unprofessional? Now, just for fun, let's have a little pop quiz so that we can tell the difference between the two. Now, for each of those scenarios, I want you to tell me if it was professional or unprofessional. Tally up your score and leave it in the comments down below. Oh my God, I'm so drunk that I threw up all over the floor and then I club yeah so this chick she was like a 10 I went to see the new play that was out over the weekend I just bought a new DSLR and so I actually spent the weekend in the Lower East Side photographing the buildings I went out to eat at that new restaurant and I was just having the worst gastro issues ever Now, drawing from the first guideline, the second guideline is to keep it superficial. Now, as we went through that quiz, there was one thing that you noticed, which is probably that the unprofessional was giving a little bit too much information. But where- Yeah, I, I, I've had a teeny weeny bit of an issue with that. All right, this is Welsh boy, Treble Kai Thomas, 12 years old, saying something called Sugan. Sleep, dear child, 